Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, Regenerates, to a new episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. It has been a long time since I've managed to get an episode out. I apologize. I have been busy and working to get back into a podcasting rhythm, but lots of things have been happening in my life. I just moved into onto a beautiful new uh, farm with my family. Um, Region Network work has been very, very busy for those of you who've been following that. And um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to be trying to get back into the swing of things. And this episode, um, episode 44, episode 43, I, I don't think we managed to get out because there were some audio issues, but I'm going to keep this as episode 44, uh, is with Jason Snyder and uh, Matthew Bukowski. Uh, Bukowski and um, Matt and Jason and I are... Twitter mutuals, essentially, um, and all three of us are active homesteaders, uh, in quotes, meaning we all work the land and live in rural areas. Um, and the three of us have had different, um, very interesting conversations on Twitter, ranging the, the spectrum of, I guess, um, Jason's resonance with and engagement with the Doomer optimism meme from uh, our friend Ashley at, at Rhizome, Rhizome School and um, Matthew's amazing, has, has uh, done some amazing work publishing, thinking, is an intelligent guy. And three of us have kind of, yeah, just gotten cross-threaded on you know, how much we should be preparing for collapse versus how much we should be um, open maybe to the world not be not being in dire straits, I suppose. I, I don't know exactly how to characterize the, the conversation in all honesty, but it was a good one. It was fun. It's a long one. I think we went for just about three full hours. So, um, yeah, lots of interesting things from from intellectual engagement to really practical stuff uh, at certain moments, and you know, just uh, scan, spanning the gamut. Um, really interesting conversation. I really love engaging with both these guys on Twitter. It's fun to take conversations a layer deeper and get to have just uh, more verbal conversations. So um, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Um, I will be doing my best to get back onto the podcast, uh, get back onto the podcast wagon here. Um, this is going to be kind of rough cut. I don't think we're going to edit much. I am going to do my best to be investing in and creating a smoother uh, post-production pipeline and yeah, just sort of engaging things. It's going to be slow though. I don't want to make any promises. I tried to get, uh, get myself into a rhythm and juggle on a lot of things, uh, with region network and, and home. So, uh, just want to keep it sustainable. I do love doing podcasting though. So my hope is to get a nice, uh, nice sustainable rhythm, some, some good support doing production and, uh, and pump out some quality content for you, you all, uh, regenerates and regenerati who are out there on the, the thriving living edge of the regenerative movement. Um, so yeah, hope this finds everybody well. It's autumn here in the Berkshires and Massachusetts, um, 
peak. We're just about peak. It's beautiful. Been finding lots of mushrooms outside. So I hope you're all uh, enjoying some outdoor time as well. And uh, without further ado, I give you Matthew Burkowski and Jason Snyder, two of my internet mutuals, two of my Twitter mutuals, talking about, um, let me just see, what did I, what did I name this episode? <laughs> we're all going to make it. We're not going to make it. Hope, doom, and meta-modern homesteading. Well, welcome, gentlemen. Uh, this is like, I, I don't know if, we, if it's like uh, some sort of meta-modern meta debate, internet uh, mutuals debate club or something. It was like... Uh, I think that this was spurred by a long, probably series of different Twitter threads and conversations in which um, the three of us, but maybe mostly the two of you, have, ha have been reflecting different sides of a, of a conversation. Maybe best summarize, I'll take an attempt to summarize it, which is that uh, the world is, near near to collapse uh armageddon is nigh uh so uh you know get ready and prepare for the uh the arrival <laughs> in in this in this frame of reference in the doomer optimism frame of reference it's like prepare for the arrival of small is beautiful uh you know um, regenerative local homesteading um versus the other side which is maybe more like and so that's Jason for those of you who who, who don't know that's uh, that's Jason's perspective in a, in a I'm sure far too broad a strokes do you do you want to what so while we're setting positions Jason would you like to add anything to that <laughs> well I just want to add that there is uncertainty right um, yeah. nobody knows what the future holds um, not to get too far into discussion but I, I think I take Matthew's point that um, you know, making predictions, um, especially along any time scale, is a fool's errand. Uh, but I do, I do see that you know things are pretty dire for all the usual reasons. You know, climate, ecological uh, degradation, uh, other things as well. Um, so, but you know, I'm, I may be surprised, and I'm open to that. I'm not, you know, I'm not betting on anything. Um, I'm not a better betting person anyway. Uh, and you know, in, in terms of just this whole discussion, I, I hope I hope we can see it as kind of a co-exploration. Yeah, 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 totally. I don't actually want to frame it as a debate unless it's fun, and then in which case we can like have fun debating. So yeah, that's that's helpful. Oh, this is not a, a verbal death match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rumble on Zoom. Death match. Yeah, uh, no, I, I completely agree with, with that framing. I mean, in fact, I was actually going to mention something quite similar in the sense that I think it's always quite important for us to uh, to set our our goals for our interactions, maybe as sort of a, a frame of reference before diving into just the uh, potential uh, uh, potential differences that we might have in our perspectives, because obviously those differences. Um, while they might emerge in a sort of contentious fashion at times, I do think that they're attempting to synthesize towards something uh, generally better and sustainable, more sustainable for uh, uh, for the problems that we face. You know, so yeah, totally. Well, 
maybe let me take a, a crack at my understanding of your position in this, Matthew, and, uh, and then you can add a little color like Jason did. And, uh, and then maybe we could just spend a little time like steel manning the, the, these two apparent positions. I'm not even, I'm sure that it's like, there's actually a multiplicity of, <laughs> of things, but, um, and then just sort of dig in and see where, the, see where it takes us. I'm sure it'll be pretty interesting. Um, so my perception of your view, Matthew, is that um, it's very hard to predict and there are reasons to believe that um, although the future won't be like the past, it, it won't be shit. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or maybe like the shittiness and beauty will be as complex and mixed up as it is presently in the future or something. And that, um, and that you're sort of like nudging people towards maybe not, re not reacting to the way things are now um, in order to plan the future. And there's something that, you know, and I think if someone was to straw man your position, it maybe looks like techno utopianism, uh, maybe perhaps. And if we were to straw man Jason's position, maybe it looks like, you know, sort of like crunchy doomerism or something like that, <laughs> right? But both of you are definitely not actually in the straw man position. And, you know, in Matthew, your perspective, I actually struggle to like fully express, I, I have a harder time like categorizing your, like how I, I see you showing up. So do you want to you know, take a crack at adding any color there or, you know, any amendments or, or just like, did I miss, miss the mark entirely? Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I think, I think that you're sort of tracing certain lines of conversation that show, you know, that showed up on Twitter in response to uh, statements that were put forward with respect to the, the likely probability or, or the, the a sensible probability or assumed probability of certain types of collapse scenarios. And um, we can, we can unpack this further as we move on, and I'm sure we will, but uh, a lot of my lines of argumentation emanate from attempting to go down to the most fundamental first principles that I can possibly imagine, um, not necessarily governing or driving, but I would say at least constraining um, the possibility space of our options, right? And I think in a lot of the conversations around collapse, you know, I think one of the most compelling cases I've seen put forth for collapse was put forth by uh, Jeffrey West, Jeffrey West uh, of the Santa Fe Institute, uh, author of the book Scale, and someone who's tried to study cities as an organism and has done a lot of research in terms of uh, the increase of consumption of energy and the implications of the fact that this increasingly forces uh, more and more rapid changes upon our society. And if you extrapolate that forward in time, this seems to either imply some sort of fundamental transition in our relationship to each other, to energy or a collapse. And I, I do think that there's a lot of, I, I think that there's a significant reality to that probability. But I also think that if we are to avoid that reality, um, we have to synthesize certain perspectives that are deeply held from, you know, from past wisdom with 
forms of technology that allow us to maybe change the timescales that we have in, you know, available to us to deal with these problems. And secondarily, I do think that uh, even if we do end up in a collapse scenario where we go strictly back to certain modes of, uh, let's say, uh, agricultural relationship with the earth that purely existed uh, prior to current society, I think that the same exact problems, if we're not entirely, if our species is not entirely um, eradicated, uh, I think the same problems will emerge for reasons analogous or, or, or very similar to why, uh, to those Jeffrey, what Jeffrey West puts forth uh, in terms of his like fundamental relationships uh, between scaling uh, energy and uh, the efficiency of systems and their evolution. So that's the highest level summary and the most concise summary I think I could muster. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, you know, I think from my perspective, I'm, I sort of resonate with, with the whole, the wholeness of this conversation. I think it's fast. I, I think it's fast apparent that there aren't really sides to this. It's not really an argument. There aren't really sides, but, you know, for instance, like, yeah, I mean, I live on a homestead, right? And uh, the first, you know, in quotes, investment I ever made was in an agroforestry farm. And, you know, I've been sort of like, I tend toward the, you know, um, small, diverse, resilient, regenerative, you know, agriculture um, and businesses associated with that. But I, I see that more as a, an, an aesthetic and uh, sort of like ethical, sort of like personal aesthetic and ethical choice and less, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm clear that it's part of a, of a vision of, of a, a future vision, but I am personally skeptical of, you know, that the universality of everyone sort of like having small localized sort of regenerative enterprise ecosystems. And, you know, um, you know, I, I sort of, I think it's a piece of the puzzle <laughs> and it's the one that I think is the most sort of fun and appealing to me. And, and the one that I want to like raise my kids in, for instance, you know, we started as we were chatting, just talking about, you know, the children in our lives. So, mm -hmm. but I kind of, you know, just the, the, the basic, the fundamental premise I hold is that we need to be able, and this, this, this is a sort of provocative and maybe wrong, but I tend to hold the vision that sort of the ethical imperative of the 21st century is that we need to make room for a world in which we have technological urban spacefaring civilization coexisting with hunter gatherers and agrarian and small rural agrarian communities and that that all happens in a way in which the biosphere is respected above all else and that there's sort of like sort of a full spectrum of human cultural expression and that that's actually the the goal really of any sort of like meaningful sort of politics in a way is to make sure that those can happen and, and that you you don't you don't want to necessarily like completely crash the urban techno starfaring civilization experiment, you just want to make sure that it doesn't interfere, it doesn't like kill the biosphere <laughs> or, or, or impose um, challenges for smaller rural communities or hunter gatherers like large, 
wild, you know, where humans are part of a, a wild landscape. So that's my attempt to sort of like reconcile this whole thing into something that's sort of like a, I don't know what that would be called. That's my version of like regenerative ethos or futurism or something. It's not really eco-modernism, you know, which, uh, you know, and I, I haven't really heard, I, I'm not sure where that would land in terms of like other thinkers or people, but that's, you know, that's my crack at it, basically. It sounds very metamodern to me. I, I had a tweet a while back, not to plug my own tweets, but uh, something like, um, you know, a true metamodern civilization would be where, you know, we're bringing forth kind of the best of all the prior ages, um, not, not a return, you know, R-E-T-V-R-U, you know, V-R-N, but a bringing forth. And it sounds, that, that's kind of, that sounds like the vision you're putting forth, but also including the spacefaring part. So, you know, all of, all, all of kind of the visionary aesthetics that we've gotten in the last few decades, throw that in there as well. Yeah, well, I just feel like there's enough human, whether or not I want to go to Mars, or even whether or not I think it's that smart, there's enough other people who clearly think that that's a thing that I'm just kind of like, my tendency is to just kind of roll with it. <laughs> Right. Be like, as long as you don't screw over my sort of like rural agrarian desire, <laughs> like that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean that is, that is ahead, the question. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I often like to speak about this problem in terms of, you know, these different layers of emergent systems and the, the fact that, you know, humanity is comprised of many agents. Each each human is this, you know, a particular uh, has a particular domain of autonomy. Uh, it has specific interests. It has a particular vision of what's valuable in the world. And you know, I think kind of what you're pointing at there, Gregory, is, is the fact that we want to bring in as much information from those experiences as we can, so long as that information can also, in the collective frame of reference, retain stability such that things don't fall apart and yeah. that the side effects or the, the externalities of any one of those uh, processes or, or, or the processes set in motion by any subset of those individual agents doesn't overwhelm or preclude the viability of, of the others. And, and that's an extremely difficult problem. I don't think it's a solvable problem, but I do think that in, in, in a very deep way, uh, evolution itself is the best answer that life has thus far put forward to that kind of tension, a problem that's constrained in that way. And, um, and, and unfortunately, at least so far, that's meant that the solution involves a massive amount of failure and death. And ideally, I, I hope solutions moving forward can sort of virtualize some of that adaptive, uh, those adaptive dynamics to help realize and, and actually articulate and trace the, the, the shape of, of what it looks like to balance the wills or the, the, the needs and the values uh, and the, uh, the, the resources required as well as the externalities output by you know, people who are trying to go to Mars, for example, in relation to those who are trying to actually uh, regeneratively steward a, a space of land or increasingly perhaps the entire biosphere of the planet. Um, moving toward that seems uh, unlikely <laughs> in our current frame of reference, but ideally we could find a way toward it uh, I guess I mean, maybe we're trying to, trying to take a step toward that now. <laughs> I, what, would say, what? I would say it doesn't seem so unlikely. I would say it seems. Okay. Unlikely, but. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I mean, I hope you're right. 
Well, I guess I mean I I'm a, I love both both the vision that both of you are putting forward. I mean, you know, if, if that if I felt like that was possible and even likely, um, that'd be one thing. I, I think maybe, uh, you know, I might be more skeptical than both of you on the viability of that. Um, and I don't know if we want to go down that road. I think it's um, worthwhile. I, mean, I think I think that's that is the question. I mean, I think that's kind of why we're here. Like as much as I we're co-exploring, I mean, there is something in terms of a, a core difference in terms of our perspectives. And I think that core difference does seem to revolve around, you know, the viability of that optimism. And if there is something that is going to derail it or or guarantee a short-term collapse, um, what is that something? So I do think it makes a lot of sense for us to try to unpack that. Yeah. So okay, let me let me um, say what I think is kind of implicit in both of your worldviews. Both both of you are hopeful for, and perhaps even expect that um, we will have as much or even more access to energy in the future. I don't think that's clean, clean and abundant. I don't energy. think that's true in my from my perspective. It's not I, true. I think it's possible, but I would. I don't. I. I don't think that that's uh, that that my worldview and my optimism is founded on an expectation that that's true. I think it's it's like it may or may not be. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you what how how do you think the viability of your vision would change um, in a world with you know double the amount of energy and by the way it's you know the negative externalities are much lower. Uh, it makes it much easier to achieve, for sure. Yeah, right. Versus a world that has half or a quarter. Of it makes it much, much easier. But, yeah. but I, th I guess I place the threshold for like where it, it can't be done actually at a lower energy, like significantly lower energy um, scenario than we currently inhabit. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't personally think that it, like energy, like caloric energy is the, the major limiting factor to a, a beautiful civilization. I, I think it's helpful. It's like water, you know, for plants or whatever. And um, <laughs> I mean, it's more than helpful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of required, right? I mean, plants will die without water. Um, yeah, but how much? It's like right. you can oh, get a very viable, beautiful ecosystem, you know, yeah. with not a lot of water, and you can and 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 you can um, catch and store water in arid places to create, you know, eat you know Edens uh, oases. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I think there are. I mean, just and I don't want to go. I have a tendency to go abstract. Um, I don't, I'm going to try to avoid going too abstract, but you know, we are talking about energy. So I do think it makes sense for us to, to unpack some fundamental concepts in terms of, you know, when we're talking about a system of energy or we're talking about the kinds of reactions that do or do not take place in a given system, we have to kind of try to understand these as systems. And we, we're, we have to ask the question, first of all, um, like right now we're maybe we should separate these two, this one conversation into two in terms of, well, assuming we keep the same concepts and same processes that we have now in terms of like open-ended inputs and open-ended outputs, 
you know, obviously that's not a sustainable equation yeah. given finite energy on the planet. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but the interesting question is, well, can you change the structure of the processes or the topology or the, or the, the network structure of the processes and the flows of energy and material on the planet yeah. um, such that our relationship to energy is changed and therefore our relationship to um, the, the injection of that waste energy into these other systems, which we destroy with that entropy um, is, is also changed. Uh, and, and like to the extent that we were able, like if we could pull that off perfectly instantaneously, I don't think we would need any additional sources of efficient energy or, or, or lower, um, uh, lower externality energy. Like if we could get over that activation energy, right? If we could like, like a chemical reaction, right? Even if it's favored um, thermodynamically, you need a little bit of energy input. You need to light the fuse of the firecracker, right? Even if it wants to explode once that's getting going. Um, I think that right now there's many processes that are precluding our transition to much more easily favored closed loop systems that um, are, are not favored because the energy threshold to get over them is, is, um, is, is economically um, unfavorable. And that's, well, I think that's that- the That's the key. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the, from my perspective, that's the root protocol, the root monetary logic. The, the thing that's keeping us from closed loop, efficient energy cycles and optimizing for economic modes of economic production that are not linear, extractive, degenerative and wasteful is the, the structure of the monetary system. And a, as sort of like an organizing, oh, Matthew just disappeared. <laughs> that was a good trick. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, keep talking, Gregory, and, and I'll yeah. talk with you. So, <laughs> so that's my, my hypothesis is that all of this really boils down to if we reinvent our monetary and economic systems, we can achieve pretty radical economic and energy transformations at or below our current energy sort of usage. Um, and create a lot of happiness and, and sustainability. Um, yeah. and, and, I, and I believe, furthermore, I believe that money is a social construct. And so right. therefore, there's like the ability to work on that. And, and, and it's a, you know, that it is an engineering problem and, and it is a techno, technological problem and it's a social, it's an integrative holistic problem set, but it's like tractable. Yeah. And, and it's simple and complex and we can sort of like we can run experiments around that and transform yeah. it so i mean I, I certainly think it would help to have a different monetary system with different incentives that organized ourselves in a more you know in, in kind of a biomimicry type of system where we were able to kind of you know lean our industrial processes in a way that's more like ecology, right? That's closed loop. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of interested in the details because so I, I've been, for example, I've been reading Richard Heinberg recently, both his, his 2015 book, Our Renewal Future, and then I've been looking at his, his new book, The Future of Power or something like that. Um, and, 
you know, so he, you know, his, his basic argument is that, yeah, we need to switch over to renewables. Um, but it's not like you could just unplug, you know, fossil fuels and plug in renewables and call it a day, right? There's a lot of challenges associated with that, that most people seem to underestimate or they're not, they're not talked about in the media. Um, you know, one is just the, the amount of energy available, right? As we kind of already covered, you know, the energy return on energy invested. Um, and, you know, we can talk about whether we're bullish on something like fusion power coming online sooner, you know, some kind of clean, you know, high energy source, but, you know, in lieu of that in the next few decades, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear that we're gonna have as much energy. Okay, but if we can make it more efficient, if we can, you know, if we can kind of recycle the waste, that's something. But for example, he also, you know, for, he, he advocates, well, even if we were to, you know, gear up the next 10 years and, you know, build, you know, I don't know, orders of magnitude, more solar panels and, and wind turbines, you know, there's gonna be an initial burst of emissions because all of that is still a, you know, heavily fossil fueled process. Right, the embodied energy of all of our industrial processes are not electric, or for the most part, you know, th there's some improvements in that way, and there's, you know, there's people that are hopeful that we can electrify, you know, our heavy transportation, heavy industrial processes, but, you know, it's going to rely on a lot of technologies that we don't really have yet or haven't proved scalable. Um, and so, you know, he argues that well, we're going to, you know we really have to think in terms of degrowth and less energy usage and organizing our societies around less energy usage now, because even if we move towards renewables, um, we're gonna have to, first of all, counteract the burst of emissions that it'll take to do that. Uh, but also, you know, the amount of extraction that, you know, all the rare earth minerals that you need for, you know, all the materials, for the mining, for the smelting, you know, all of these industrial processes, you know, are not scot-free, right? They, they have a large ecological footprint as well. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. And so, I mean, so I guess my perspective is that that all may be true, but the way to shift all of that is to just change what's valuable. <laughs> and if you change what's valuable, yeah. then all of a sudden, the waste, the, the monumental wastefulness of the current sort of economic regime, um, which currently optimize, like that's, that's how the game works. If you want to generate the most value, you externalize the most of the costs that you can. Right. <laughs> and if, yeah. and, and if uh, Matthew can't hear you, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, So, well, nope, audio issues. So while you're working on that, Matthew, I'll just kind of keep going on that thread. So if we, if, if all of that is actually, not to be overly, I mean, economic about it, I guess, but if, if if that wastefulness is appropriately priced and the, 
then it won't happen, right? People won't be, there won't be incentives to do that. There will be incentives to minimize its extractive. So sort of like degrowth through transformation of what's valuable. Like, like, I guess there's sort of, for me, I guess I'm like, a, I'm, I'm not a degrowther because I think that there's a, there's an issue with at least my read and I'm not super deep into the literature, right? But just my sense, my sense of like the memescape out there is sort of that there's an expectation that people must make this change for moral reasons, basically, right? And, and I think that's not, not likely to be tenable, that I actually think you need to sort of structure in incentives to make it, you know, there needs to be a carrot needs to be joyful and profitable and there needs to be personal like my personal agency grows when i'm better at you know interacting with society in certain ways um and that comes back to the monetary system so i guess from my perspective if you achieve money essentially backed by ecological health and your you know your business your monetary system everything loses value when you're you know ex externalizing when you have large negative externalities then it really like hones the the usage of industrial capability and and i, I think it re results in higher quality of life alongside this like industrial degrowth that we're talking about i happen to believe that 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 the most likely scenario that that uh, accompanies virtualization of a large amount of consumption. And so you get things like, you know, NFT economies and stuff like that, where people are still doing weird status capitalism stuff, but, you know, this ability to scale that virtually, um, you know, it, it's not a, the, the negative externalities associated with that are no longer linear. They're like, you know, it's just diminishing. So you can get a huge amount of sort of like consumptive, <laughs> craziness with like marginally a lot less less energy use basically yeah i mean again you know i agree that it would certainly help if we had incentives that internalize externalities um etc but you know so you know when i read heinberg or i, I read someone like saul griffith who is also kind of you know big energy guy uh, I was looking at his paper, Rewiring America. I mean, they both kind of come with the assumption that kind of taken for granted that, hey, this is what is possible if everybody kind of gets on board, right? So that's already a big assumption. Um, and, you know, it's a very questionable assumption that, you know, if, if we align our policies right now, you know, to move in the correct direction, this is what is kind of physically possible, right? And, and so I feel like, you know, these kinds of analyses are already factoring what you're talking about in, sort of. I, um, I've talked to Richard. He's definitely not yeah. factoring anything, Okay. I think, remotely akin to what I'm talking about into his analysis, from what I can tell. Well, what is, so expand on that. Well, so there's like this hard-nosed sort of like existentialism or materialism from yeah. both Richard and and Saul, I think, in which the, like um, imagining a, a societal phase shift in which the rules fundamentally change and have, and have like orders of magnitude 
sort of shifts in how the economy acts is not allowed in their worldview. Hmm. So I they're mean, sort of like, they're sort of like this machine, which yeah. is the economy is running. And if it keeps running, it will mm -hmm. like eat everything up and die. That's their basic argument. And yeah. I'm, and I would say like, yeah, that's basically true. Yeah. So you have to move, you have to like phase shift and be operating in a different place to, mm -hmm. to change the conditions and to affect the, that, that system. I've okay. never heard Richard Heinberg talk about monetary theory. What's that? I've never heard Richard talk about monetary theory. Yeah, I, I guess the point I'm making is that they both kind of preface their arguments as in if, if we were to mobilize like political right? level or, yeah. or above kind of a mobilization and you're right, I, I haven't heard them talk about monetary theory. And so like, like check it out. If yeah. if you were to get ridiculously rich yeah as an individual american like mm. we're talking like you, you're going to be catapulted in the top one percent mm. by not just like decarbonizing your life but having meaningfully decarbonizing your entire community right on the next in like the next three years and like just radically transform everything and that includes you know like innovating a million different ways to do so, which may include alternative energy sources, but may also include significant just like lifestyle changes in which status and, yeah. you know, all so the let rest me say of that where, let me say where what, you. what do you yeah. think would happen? I, I think people would hustle and like, I think you'd see like 3000 different communities do 3000 different things, but it would all result in like way beyond what they could with that sort of particular sort of like set of goggles, you can, it's, it'd be irrational. The irrational exuberance of people <laughs> like doing a gold rush sort of mentality thing. I, I think it's, it's like, you can't really predict it. It doesn't seem like, it seems obvious in retrospect, those sorts of phase shifts, but it's really hard to like analyze things and, and think that that's sane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I agree with you in the sense that you know, I don't think they they really provide a roadmap towards you know towards how how we would get to these and this kind of new system state. Um, but again, you know, I, I think that they're what they're trying to do is basically say, you know, in order to make a transition, this is what this is what what we'd have to end up with. We'd have to end up with an economy where, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, electrify, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our, um, a lot of our lives, you know, we, we'd have to figure out how to make steel and cement and rubber and glass and all of these other industrial products that um, are very hard to electrify, or at least to do it in any kind of cost effective way or at scale, um, people would have to, you know, this is the amount of energy that might or might not be available. And so so, they're, so they're, they're looking at it kind of like, this is what it would have to look like. But I agree with you that they're not saying how we would get there, right? Or, you know, and I think what you're saying is, uh, you know, if there was some kind of new incentive where people were, for example, paid to 
um, sequester carbon or to promote biodiversity or something like that, they, their, their values would shift and their incentives would shift and they, they might end up you know, using less material, you know, material items that, you know, eventually end up in the dump, right? They would use less or, more effectively for different things. Yeah. What's that? They would use less more effectively for different things. Right, right. And so I guess, I guess where I don't agree with you is, is I, I, I think, I think they're, I agree with you that they're not taking into account how, you know, they're not providing a kind of an economics roadmap of how, how those incentives would shift. They're saying, okay, assume in a world that everybody realized that we're in deep shit, uh, this is the kind of mobilization that would have to happen. And, you know, they don't, they don't know any details of it. Would it be top down? Would it be bottom up? Would it be, you know, through crypto or, you know, uh, they don't get into those details, but they say just on a material and energetic level, you know, this is where we would have to get to, right? And, and that's, I guess, where I'm pushing back on, on you a little bit, is that, you know, assuming that this is where we would need to get to, to, you know, not get over 1.5 degrees centigrade in, in the climate, or, you know, not continue to degrade our ecosystems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, this is, you know, we would have to basically, you know, this is you know, like, we, we would just have to stop using fossil fuels, basically, or, or, or mostly decarbonize our economy and use you know, use the oil that we have or whatever, or treat it very, in a very precious manner for, for very kind of um, boutique things or thing, things that are just very kind of crucial and very hard to replace. Um, and so I guess I'm pushing back a little bit on your critique of them, but I, even though I agree with part of it. Are, are, Matthew, are you back with us? And can you talk to us? I, I don't know, can you hear All me? All right, we can hear you. Yep, there you are. <laughs> okay. Oh man, yeah, that was fun. I I, uh, I was mostly with y'all through that while I was trying to figure out whatever the hell's going on. I had like a total fail with respect to my camera and audio, so I just defaulted to my my laptop. But um, yeah. So I I want to I guess touch on a couple things. I do think that much of it has to do with um, the way that we represent value, uh, and I, I use that specifically instead of the the word money. Um, money is obviously yeah, has a very long history of, of evolution, uh, or the way that we represent value has a very long history of evolution with respect to human behavior. Um, I think that the money, the monetary systems we see today um, represent a very narrow subset of functional value in the world. And uh, part of what we're experimenting with as, as a species at the moment in this domain of crypto is how to reincorporate uh, other information into uh, expressive monetary systems such that we can change the way that we behave both in terms of you know, how we behave in the present but more importantly i think how we decide over uh, how we decide the time horizons that are important over which to behave and um, changing those time preferences and changing our relationship to um, the the length of the window that we're capable of examining in terms of bringing in information or even hypothetical information about possible futures into present day decisions or transactions. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, there's a huge, there's, there's so much opportunity for that, uh, but it's extremely difficult to predict how it will unfold. Um, at the very least, one hopes that it will begin to allow us to uh, play different coordination games that are precluded by the current monetary regime. Um, today that can't represent any types of negative externalities to 
uh, you know, linear processes that do not care where their inputs come from or where their X, you know, outputs go to. Um, so I don't know exactly how that is going to factor in because in a complex system, you know, a system as complex as the entire world uh, reacting back upon itself as it unfolds with everybody and, you know, believing what they believe and, and working towards the ends that they're working towards. It's very difficult to, probably impossible, really, to, uh, to know exactly where it's going to go. But I do think that, like, this is part of humanity's sort of intuitive response to um, understanding that the symbols and languages we're using are insufficient for the problem. So at least we're working on that. I don't know if it's going to be, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a success or failure, or if it's going to be re-co-opted by the same forces that were previously benefiting from uh, monetary systems or not. Uh, that's all still up for grabs, I think. Um, at least it's not obvious that it's not possible. That, that's reason for uh, rejoicing to some extent, I think. Um, although, then on although I think Jason's saying that it is. I think that's the crux of the art of the if there's a if there's like a disagreement, it's that I, I think Jason sort of saying it actually does seem obvious that it's impossible. Well, specifically the monetary part, or because I, I thought the impossible or like what Jason was more talking about was certain um, relationships to yeah. the need to release certain energy amounts and. The necessity of, of those releases putting us over, uh, I guess, what you would assume to be critical thresholds, which also depends on an interesting question about how much we can trust uh, yeah, sort of production. Twitter. The what? <laughs> we also, uh, also had an argument about, about that on Twitter. I, with I mean, respect to like the capacity to model for projection. Oh yeah, with respect to the notion of earth limits or critical thresholds. Um, mm -hmm. What we know, what we can't know. No, I mean all I'm saying is that you know just based on kind of these these energy guys who, who who you know are engineers for the most part they think like engineers they, they don't think in terms of social incentives so you know i grant grant you that um but just you know their perspective is just kind of you know thermodynamic perspective right they're just saying okay you know if, if we want to use as much energy that we do now in the future you know, is that possible, right? Just on a very thermodynamic sense and based on, you know- uh, With the current technology, if we- With the current technology and projected technology. Yeah, and, and, and that could be, that, that could change as well. I mean, so like Heinberg frames it as, yeah, you know, um, you know, things like solar and wind are getting cheaper, they're getting better, battery technology is getting better, but I'm, you know, at least, you know, he, uh, states that he's he's factoring that in, and 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 still he's he's running up against these limits where he's basically saying, look, we're going to have to use a lot uh, a lot less energy in the future, even if we switch over. Uh, you know that might not be a bad thing. The thing is, though, like I don't with arguments in the sense that you know if if we're recycling, you know, if we're closing loops and we're putting our energy that we do have towards you know towards this you know. Uh, important sectors where we need to get over some kind of activation threshold, um, you know, are what, what we're all talking about might not, might not actually be that different. Like we might actually see a world where there's actually less throughput, you know, extracted from the earth, uh, you know, ending up in the landfill and, you know, the energy equivalent of that, um, you know, although our lives seem richer and better. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's precluded by anything that Heinberg or you know, Griffith are talking about. 
And Griffith yeah. is more optimistic. He's like saying, we can just live our lives as they are. And, you know, we just need to electrify everything. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit <laughs> more skeptical of his argument, but. Yeah, well, I mean, electrification is interesting because of the fact yeah. that, and just as an aside, electrification, I think more people should probably integrate into their mental model, the idea yeah. that electrification, um, while, you know, the inputs obviously have, um, deleterious side effects in terms of environmental degradation of, of, of mining, for example, mm. of the rare earth minerals required to create batteries, you know, the footprint is actually still dramatically reduced in comparison to something like the current footprint of uh, extraction in the petrol industry or the, the you know, the non-renewable oil-based uh, or fracking or just natural um, non-renewables. So, so there's that on the input side and then on, but on the output side, obviously we create, we create externalities still batteries and those batteries are still going to have to be dealt with um it's still mm -hmm. waste but the interesting thing about that is at the very least that waste is a concentrated physical material as opposed to a diffuse set of extremely high entropy gases right that are almost impossible to recapture and and that battery uh while there's a high energy barrier to uh get over if you were that to, if you were then to try to find a way to make it um feasible or desirable to break that back down into its constituent materials for some other, as inputs for some other process, at least it can be potentially done. Uh, whereas the idea of, you know, recapturing um, the gases as a side effect of, of yeah. these other processes is, is, is <laughs> much harder problem. Um, yeah. But uh, then beyond that, I think that there's this interesting question of, you know, the human body and life itself is, is a very, it's very efficient, right? Like we run on the energy, like hundred Watts, like a light bulb essentially, right? um per day and so like there's this interesting question as to why that is and you know one uh, ostensible you know hypothesis for not even a hypothesis like you can show that basically this is because of the fact that we have many cyclic processes that are that have evolved by you know on the axiom essentially that the outputs mm -hmm. of a given process are the inputs of another process and building upon that building more and more complexity upon that and if that fails to manifest typically it's selected against, right? Um, but we have, as humans, created, um, and like in evolution, you do get these divergences, which is interesting, like where you actually have these massive productions of outputs uh, with no, uh, you know, as, that are inputs yet for nothing, right? Mm -hmm. um, my favorite example there is, you know, when trees first evolved, but before uh, fungi that could break down lignin evolved, right? you started having the byproduct of tree growth, which we typically see, oh, like trees, they're part of this natural ecology, they're part of, the regenerative vision that we're striving for. But at one point before there was this cycle, they were littering the earth with their corpses and, and, and drowning out the rest of life. Um, and so it's like, it's interesting from that perspective to me where it's like, I think that's where Gregory and I come down more on the side of so much of the calculations, um, especially in thermodynamics and especially in you know, thermodynamic equations that piggyback on mechanical processes and, and the mathematics associated typically with those mechanical processes, um, they don't necessarily incorporate uh, more of the sort of cybernetic perspective on, on the flows of energy that can be cycled through systems in different ways. Um, because, you know, it's much harder to write a paper about that. It's a much more complex problem. Um, you're not going to get sexy numbers that, that come out on the back of an envelope and are easy to talk about because mm -hmm. it, it it's, it's just... Um, it's just not that kind of um, system, uh, not that kind of math. It's an open system. It's a complex system. Uh, it's messy. But uh, anyhow, like I'll, I'll leave it there. Just sort of like maybe we yeah. 
Well, a couple of interesting things. I mean, one, as you started with, you said that, you know, the human body, you know, runs on 100 watts caloric energy a day equivalent. Um, and so, I mean, to me, that's, you know, you know, and if we're applying that to changing all of our, you know, industrial, you know, ecological systems, you know, that that is basically degrowth by other words, it's figuring out how to use energy um, better, right, and more secular uh, cybernetic processes, or, or let me ask you, or are you saying the whole, like you're seeing the whole process as being higher energy, but just close to, you know, very little waste, or at least very little waste that, you know, would, would cause problems for us, right, or, or, you know, yeah, I don't think, I mean, like, I don't know, like, I, 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 I think it's very hard, like, the way that we've built, um, so there's always a tension between, uh, between experimentation and uh, energy efficiency, right? So, like, a hummingbird is actually a really, really fascinating example of this, right? Like, the, the, the metabolism of, of a hummingbird is, is operating right at that extreme edge of metabolic efficiency, whereas if they have any slight deviations to the genes that regulate their mitochondrial behavior, um, they are almost immediately selected against because they can no longer fly. Um, and so it's like, how many of our processes are somewhat like that, that we've created? Uh, so there's this question of like degrowth, which is like, okay, it depends a lot what we mean by growth, which we can maybe get into next. But then one thing I worry about as well is like, okay, well, the naive approach to degrowth, if you, if you attempt to sort of downshift on energy inputs too quickly or too forcibly, you can get into situations where you inadvertently trigger those sorts of uh, maladaptive, uh, uh, maladaptive collapse scenarios because we didn't understand that if we basically reduce energy inputs over here, there'd be this cascade of side effects and the system you know, decoheres or falls apart or, or kind of like seizes up. Um, but I do think it's really interesting to also, perhaps we should define like what we actually even mean by growth, because mm. I think that the idea of growth, you know, we typically think of it as sort of an extensive property, right? It, it means that a thing keeps getting bigger in terms of physical space. Mm. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's true. I do think that like uh, taking the same amount of structure and reorganizing such that you get higher complexity or greater cyclicality is a form of growth. Mm. It's just not a form of extensive growth. I don't think that that's really taken into account in a lot of these models. Um, I'd be be interested to hear what you think about that. Is your understanding, Matthew, that higher complexity requires more energy in in general or or not necessarily? Um, In general, uh, well, again, so now we, we kick the can back one more. I was, when I visited in 2018, I went and visited with a group of people, the Santa Fe Institute. And um, it was funny because the tour guide actually one of his little jokes was like, if you want to see a fight here at the Santa Fe Institute, just ask to the scientists to define complexity. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so it's hard to, to give a, a, like a straight answer to that. Um, there are definitely definitions of complexity that equate energy input or energy, um, energy and complexity scaling um, with positive correlation, right? So that, that means like as energy, as complexity scales, you require greater energy inputs um and i think like maybe in the grand scheme right in the same way that like at the scale of the universe entropy always increases but locally you can find entropic decrease um you can find ordered systems for various reasons um i I think there's something similar in terms of on the grand scale uh there's probably a positive correlation between energy demand and complexity 
Uh, but I do think locally, there are plenty of opportunities where certain systems um, can be made more complex in certain ways, but that are actually more energy efficient. So, um, but I do think that, again, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult conversation because you have to balance the fact that we're talking multi-scale and we have to be very specific about you know, which layer of the system we're talking about and where we're drawing our boundaries with respect to what we call a system, for example. Uh, right. In the same way that you do, the, the, the same way that you have to draw these delineations when you're talking about any sort of thermodynamic system or set of systems. So when you say at a local scale, are you also including potentially Earth, the Earth scale, global scale? In, mm -hmm. in, in, in other words, do you see as part of this potentiality of actually having greater complexity with less energy inputs at a global scale, like on net? Um, again, depends on how you define complexity, but I, I do think that in the short run, it is possible, uh, to have, uh, by certain measures, greater complexity, uh, and mm -hmm. equal or lesser, um, energy inputs. Uh, the question is, is that a likely scenario in possibility space, uh, yeah. without increased energy inputs, um, in terms of like, uh, increased energy inputs that also have um, decreased externality profiles, I think that that's not as likely. I think, you know, if, if you don't achieve these energy, if you don't achieve these technologies that allow for um, more available free energy in the system with lower controllable externalities, I do think that collapse is more likely. I do think it's hard to get over the short-term activation energies uh, that are required to create things like, you know, um, actual processes of waste management that break down our, our complex waste products into materials that can be used in other processes, uh, processes like desalinization process. I mean, all these types of things are all these sorts of these, these technologies and many more are they're possible. They're simply not thermodynamically favored in the short run. And if we do decide to use those processes with our current footprint of, uh, of like energy um, procurement uh, or, or harnessing or harvesting, um, we tend to generate far more externalities uh, than than are tolerable, at least over the long term. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a long answer, but yeah, no. Um, interesting. <clears throat> Gregory, do you, I, I want to give you a chance to speak? I mean, I think Matthew's articulating things, you know, pretty well. You know, I think maybe more visually, I, I you know, I'm. I'm thinking of like eddies and streams and, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the pa tessellation patterns, you know, in terms of complexifying, you know, um, novelty com complexing into itself um, as a form of growth and just like holding those images as he's yeah. speaking. And, and I, you know, I think all that resonates. I still sort of like either I'm naive or or, uh, or unable to articulate why, but I don't, I, I personally, I'm still sort of like, I think we can feed everybody and give everybody shelter with a fraction of the energy that we currently use in the, for the current global economy. I think it's just totally doable technically and logistically and- given, Wait, so let, let, let's, let's distinguish here, given current technology, because what Matthew is yeah, saying is- Given current technology, given current technology let, me, let, me, let me just give an example of why I think this. Okay. Okay, so and these, these if, you, if you take the example I'm about to give and then you, and you multiply it by like 
millions because it's happening all over the world. <laughs> These sorts of things are happening all over the world. Uh, get a sense of why I think the way I think. So I grew up in Alaska. This will be a little bit of a, a slight ramble, but, but, but I think it'll ground things. I grew up in Alaska. Core in the place that I grew up is a salmon fishery. Uh, healthiest salmon fishery in the world, Alaska. You know, it's, the, it's, it's, it's vaunted and held up as one of the most successful fisheries management stories in the world, you know. Uh, okay, how did they achieve a, in quote, sustainable fishery? Um, well, they, it's, you know, it's complicated how it was achieved, but essentially they made it really expensive to catch fish is basically what they did. So all the fish go to rivers, right? We know this, all the fish go to the rivers. If you wanted to be lazy, you could just pull, you know, a sustainable amount. You could, you could pull all the fish out, right? And then you have no more fish and you'd be, the fisheries be dead, but you could, you could easily measure a sustainable harvest, right? That, uh, that there's enough escape upriver to, to reseed and repopulate in a sustainable way. You could measure that and you could take fish directly out of the mouth of the rivers, right? Um, why don't people do that? Well, it's a social problem. We don't wanna do communism. We don't wanna do whatever. We, we don't know how to allocate those resources fairly in our society. So what they did is they created a permitting system and they said, you can't catch any fish in the river unless you have a sports permit. And that's just like, you know, we'll allocate some amount of the fish to the sports fishermen, <laughs> but they just have hooks. They're expending lots of energy to do it and it's recreation, right? It does impact things, but it's not about harvesting. It's about fishing, it's like having fun. People pay lots of money, they go have their Alaska fishing adventure. They catch a few fish. You know, for the actual harvesting, we're gonna send people out into the ocean on boats burning diesel, right? And we're gonna make them put nets out and chase the fish around in the big blue sea. <laughs> okay, that shit happens all the time. We solve issues by burning petroleum. We solve issues by making, by solving social issues with, you know, by making it harder, by making people expend more energy, by making it more expensive to harvest those resources. It happens all over the economy like that. I have an embodied experience of having lived that as a young, naive human and just been like, as I was learning to think, I was just like, why are we chasing fish out in the ocean? This makes no sense. They're coming up the river. Like, you know, what would it look like for all of us who live here to like manage this? And couldn't we hang out and be lazy and capture more fish and like figure out games and co like coordination games that allow us to allocate these resources in a, in a more efficient way? The answer is yes, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, we can create coordination games that are way more efficient than sending all the fishermen out to, at the risk of their life limb and burning huge amounts of diesel fuel to chase the fish around in the middle of the ocean. Undoubtedly, that's mm -hmm. true. Um, so at the risk of oversimplification, there's like the, the kind of technologist would be really interested in, you know, how do we, you know, create these boats that don't run on 
fossil fuels or like sonar people get into these little myopic thing they're like how do we make it more efficient this like they're like the existence and that's my critique of like heinberg and stuff they're like taking this exist extant situation and they're like saying there's no way we can get enough efficiency with like hydrofoil technology and sales to like achieve the fishery and i'm sort of like if you step back a second and you just just change your perspective a little bit you don't even need a boat you don't even, you don't need a boat you don't even need any petroleum the fish are all coming up the river you know you you could weave a net out of natural fiber and haul the same amount of fish out that are getting hauled with like this sort of monumental technological apparatus decentralized i mean it's decentralized it's cool it's like lotteries and you know, capitalism. Right. But, but I think that's where that's where someone like Heinberg ends up. Is he's saying basically, you know, um, we can't expect to keep scaling up our current industrial society, and so we we need to. He doesn't go as far as you do. Granted, you know, in terms of you know saying, well, if we solve some of our coordination games, we could actually use a lot less technology, for example. Um, basically, zero. It's all social technology. I mean. This is a radical position, but I think mostly it's social coordination that's the issue. And, and, and we actually, there's a Cambrian explosion of people experimenting and playing with that. And, and we have a lot of beautiful anthropological evidence that there were social coordination games in the forms of cultures that worked really well in many different ways. And so that's kind of what gives me hope is that actually, that, that I actually think we can radically, even if we don't have a technological breakthrough, which I think is possible. It's totally possible that there's also going to be advances. It's like those two things are in tandem. It's like on one hand you have, you know, and, and I'm a big believer. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I'm like an optimist. I'm an optimist because I think my personal experience is that I may procrastinate shit as a human, but when, when like, when, you know, when, when I have to, I'm going to fucking change or I'll die. And it's not worth thinking about the death thing because I'm going to change. <laughs> and I think we're very similar to species like humans. I think we're just going to change. Like there's no other way we have to. So we'll do it. So it's sort of like, it's like the necessity as mother invention. Exactly. It's like, we have to, so we'll do it. So why agonize over it? Let's <clears throat> just get it done. <laughs> Okay, so I think so. Just uh, to point, put a little, uh, just a, I don't know, parentheses around the idea of, uh, of, of sort of responding to, um, responding, responding to problems of the commons with uh, coordination games and, and the idea that we, we can do this. We definitely do this, um, and that's it's a subset of uh, cross temporal coordination, like trying to understand. The viability or the, the value of certain um, the value of certain actions across time. So yes, the value of taking all the fish is high in the short term, but low in the long term. Right, kill all the fish. You have no fish tomorrow. Fish. And then you know, yes, you ate you know, you ate very well today, but that wasn't very wise. Um, and so there's this question of like extending these systems across time, but there's also the question of um, when we do create synthetic. Uh, parameters or synthetic boundaries to human behavior that actually have short or actually have long-term benefits uh, that accumulate value behind a, uh, a sort of wall, let's say, think of the, the social agreements required and the energy required to enforce 
um, not fishing at the mouth of the river or in the river um, as, as a sort of boundary. Um, the incentives also go up. To keep, uh, let's say we're all playing poker and, and you know, there's an increasingly large pot of, of money in, in, on the table in the middle of the room. Um, and there's nobody enforcing, you know, people not coming in back in when we take a break together. Um, you know, as the money pile grows, the uh, incentive to go into that room and abscond with the money also increases. Um, so you have this sort of uh, this self-regulating feedback in terms of the efficiency of those types of, of solutions to some extent. And, and I guess the question is, to what extent and, and how well do they scale to sort of the entire set of problems before us uh, with respect to um, the kind of more coarsely bounded questions of, uh, of resource allocation energy that we were talking about before. Um, like, are we, are we good enough to, like, is that total tyranny then? Like, if we, if we actually like, constrain ourselves so tightly um, through mechanisms of sort of artificial, uh, well, not even artificial, but through games that we try to play with one another that preclude our use, uh, despite the fact that we still have a demand, as opposed to changing demand functions through changing the way that the systems, um, actually function so that they could potentially function more efficiently with less of that demand. But then as Jason has pointed out multiple times, maybe the demand grows because of that and you're stuck in the same problem. Like, I, I don't know, um, but just sort of throwing some stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, at this point, there's so many threads to follow. Um, I wanna try and address what both of you are saying. Gregory, um, you know, you're talking about that, you know, when, you know, when we really have to, you know, when, when our back is really up against the wall, you know, people will change and you're, you're optimistic that- They'll change or they'll die. They'll change or they'll die. I mean, uh, there's, there's a question of- Well, that goes back to the evolution question earlier, evolved. right? Evolution evolves using death. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. So that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that, you know, how long would this transition take and do we have that much time, right? I mean, again, going, going back to, to our climate situation, I mean, you know, uh, if we look at, you know, many aspects of it, let's, let's take our food systems, you know, there's, there's stress, you know, crops all over the world, you know, documented this year of, you know, many of our large scale food systems are starting to wobble, right? Uh, droughts and uh, adverse weather. Um, and, and so, you know, and given this, given, you know, what we're seeing in the news, the wildfires, you know, it's, there still doesn't seem to be that much desire for people to change, right? And there's also the problem that the most vulnerable parts of the world is mainly, you know, it's mainly in the global south in terms of like climate vulnerability. You know, people in the United States are relatively more buffered from that, at least in the short term, mm -hmm. uh, even though that's starting to change as well. And so, you know, I guess what gives you hope that when people actually do wake up, there will be time and the means to actually make the transition without massive death without you know um or i guess what is your thinking there I, either it'll happen or it won't and all i can do is work my hardest to to make the to make it happen yeah okay i mean yeah, so I, mean, I think that's and, and, and yeah that's <laughs> No, I mean, that's, that's a good answer. I mean, that's, that's anything, you know, that's all any of us can do, right? So like, 
you yeah. know, we, you know, Ashley and I and some others call ourselves Doomer Optimists, you know, and that's that's kind of a similar position of like, man, things things are really fucked. But although like, I don't spend a lot of time is, pre is prepping, what's that? I don't spend very much time prepping. Yeah, neither do I. I mean, but that's to me, that's like a spiritual thing. Like, it's like, you know, coming to terms with death and, you know, whatever. It's like um, either we'll make it or we won't. And I don't have time to prep for not making it. All I have time to do is to try to make it with everybody. Like Bucky Fuller, you know, Bucky Fuller, Utopia or Oblivion, you know, it either works for everybody or it doesn't work at all, kind of. You know, either we'll make the we'll turn the corner or we won't. I, I, right. I mean, and and that's like false. I mean, that's useful for me in terms of just like those are just so it's like a way that I maintain conviction and clarity and operate in the world, and I find it useful. I can also step back, and I think it's you know the future's already here. It's unevenly distributed. You know, this is going to be heterogeneous. We've been in a constant state of collapse for probably 10,000 years <laughs> rolling civilization in the last years there and everywhere and, th and that's all that's all also true I, I think um I think yeah in terms of like the global biosphere existential threat which I happen to believe is real but I also happen to question sort of like the the like the standard threshold-based models approach a little bit. I'm like, I take all that with a grain of salt, right? I mean, I think it's kind of useful. They're like useful social tools to be like, this could be true. We should probably get our shit together and like, let's move. But I'm also like, yeah, I mean, you change a couple numbers and that could be really not true. <laughs> and yeah. um, so, you know, it's worth kind of holding it softly, I guess. Yeah. It's always difficult to understand. Like, obviously, we have a tendency to to attempt to see the world through the lens of, of simplified models, and uh, we are attempting to play a coordination game. And I, I do see, you know, obviously, there's there's the idea of sort of climate science as an unquestionable um, axiom in some ways. And it's difficult for me because while my heart is is with in many ways, the desire to create and make sure that we have a regenerative ecology at the global scale. Um, I also can't help, as someone who has fairly deeply studied complex systems and modeling, um, be very skeptical of the assumptions that rest on, you know, when people make very specific assertions uh, with respect to models of extremely complex systems that can't possibly take into account fully our response to any emergent events that uh, come out of this, you know, the, the trajectory of where we're headed, right? It's like, and that's kind of speaking to what you're talking about, Gregory, in the sense that it's really difficult to understand how as the threshold of, or as the, the scale of humans who become convinced that this is a dire problem in need of resources, time, attention, as that grows, it is very difficult to understand um, how quickly a particular wave of, uh, I don't want to say solutions, but a particular wave of, um, strategies and technologies that help us to alleviate um, the, the pressure of that, uh, or at least perhaps help us to uh, stymie the blood flow and, and prevent it from going into a, a totally existential collapse mode. Uh, it's, un it's unclear what that looks like, and it's not going to be the type of thing that you can model. So really what we're doing with a lot of these models and a lot of these narratives, you know, we're spreading awareness and we're trying to understand like, okay, well, what does it look like if things collapse? And, and 
where are thresholds uh, plausibly that we can at least have conversations about and at least sort of stoke people's imaginations about. But, you know, it's also the question of, well, then what can you do? And then it's an interesting question in terms of, well, are those abstractions useful in guiding people in terms of what it looks like to live a life that is in fact helping as opposed to hindering? And um, we seem to be in a mode where much of the frame uh, around this conversation appears to be generating a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of emotional reactivity that doesn't seem to be leading towards paths that are as helpful as they might otherwise be. Um, and as someone who's, I guess, more pragmatically minded, that worries me, where like, if we sort of conflate these actual physical problems with uh, a kind of religiosity to which we're prone as humans, um, it, it's much harder to actually do anything at any scale. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's hard to escape that. People, people will turn everything they can into a religion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is regeneration a religion, Gregory? What's that? Is regeneration a religion? I'm working hard to make it one. <laughs> Acceleration is not against religion. You're if it's going to happen anyway, we might as well just go right for it and make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, are, what, what, what are the sacraments of the regenerative religion? What are, what are, <laughs> What are the goals? What what image sits above the altar? How uh, you know? I don't know. Uh, Eden Earth. I mean, <laughs> it's it's like. So it's know. Christianity, basically. <laughs> uh, no, because Christianity isn't about creating heaven on earth. It is. No, that's the Lord's Prayer. Well, the in the. In, Matthew, maybe you remember, doesn't in the Lord's Prayer it say, you know, to make it on, you know, on earth as, as it is in heaven? That's mm -hmm. true. It does say that. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, I, yeah, there's certainly, yeah, I mean, this is, if you, especially if you sort of dip your toe into the NRX community and, and you know, the, the narratives around um, liberal democracy as a manifestation of the sort of more, uh, as, as certain sort of, um, extremist religious movements uh, focused on uh, realizing utopia in the religious sense on the planet. Uh, that, mm -hmm. Definitely. That, I mean, there are plenty of people who take that perspective. I don't know if I'm fully bought into that, but um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, 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 just to circle back though, um, I do think, I was thinking a little bit more about when we're talking about this question of uh, the kinds of complexity and, and how uh, the increase in complexity might relate to the increase uh, requirement of more energy or not. Um, are you guys familiar with like, the sort of Cinefin framework as well? Is that something that rings a bell? That word yeah. sounds familiar, but please, it's, please go it's into like it. Com complex systems, complicated systems, chaotic systems, simple systems, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, those, those terms I'm familiar with. Um, yeah, it's like, anyhow, it's like a four quadrant model. It doesn't necessarily matter for, for my mm -hmm. purposes here. I mean, I think the, the really interesting part is the difference between complicated and, and complex, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, if you, you have a complicated system, you know, the reason a car doesn't self-heal is because it's a complicated system and not a complex system, yeah. right? Yeah, a very, in a very generic sense. Like, obviously, I'm doing a disservice to the depth of the concepts in this particular framework. But the point is that um, complicated systems are the kind, like, as humanity, we are uh, embedded in our own creation of complicated systems that are not very resilient 
largely because they're not predicated at all on the the sort of the stable cyclicality upon which nature had to build. We sort of we sort of got smart enough to at least on the short term begin cheating certain loops because we injected ourselves in a natural loop and we started extracting some resource, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Whether that be energy or food or, or whatever from a naturally emergent um, stable cycle. And um, I think one interesting way of thinking about this question of whether or not it requires more energy uh, on net to mm-hmm. have a more complex society is, you know, what does it mean to transition the complicated systems that we have on the planet into more complex systems? And maybe that's a, a kind of a, a simpler way of encapsulating what Gregory and I were point, trying to point to in that respect. And that maybe uh, the beginning of that can start with new technologies around modeling value. And then those new models of value um, can begin as uh, more complex. Uh, they can have their roots in more uh, types of com- complex systems as opposed to um, complicated systems because they don't carry as much of the baggage with them as do, you know, for example, uh, physically embodied trucks or, or in- industrial infrastructure. And I think that's also related to some conversations we've had online in terms of use of information technology and the fact that despite the fact that we want degrowth, we also, I think, all don't want to sacrifice the information technology and, and value that this connectivity provides us. I think we all agree yeah. there as well. Um, and so, I don't think we could. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think without a crazy, you know, ugly zombie apocalypse die off of humans. I don't, you know, I don't think we, yeah, I mean, we need information technology to achieve the more complex social coordination and value mm-hmm. um, and value. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's also interesting with relation to, uh, and I started this conversation mentioning Jeffrey West, right? And you know, he has these charts of you know, these different you know, energy, these different exponential curves, basically stacking up into a very large exponential curve of, of sort of exponential energy requirements across shorter and shorter timescales. But the interesting thing is he, he's studying the, the metabolism of cities. Um, and there are all these super linear advantages to having a concentration of human beings in physical space in a city but at least I haven't yet heard him. He may have talked about this, but just this conversation kind of brings up this idea in my mind of like, well, what are the implications of the fact that many of those dynamics might be moving into a virtual space upon the possible energy footprint or, or the necessity of those calculations that he's made tracking forward such that the consequences are as dire as he makes it seem. Like maybe at least part of the off-ramp is we get some of those super linear returns to concentration by concentrating or aggregating our minds in spaces that don't require all of that physical movement of atoms around the earth um, and instead require only you know, energy and light in their more minimal footprints. Yeah, well, okay, so a couple, couple of things I wanna pick up on. You know, one, Although we do also fuck, we fucked that up pretty well with Twitter in a lot of ways. Right, so. right, yeah. Well, <laughs> one, I wanna go back to this, to, um, you know, can we convert our current civilization from a complicated system to a complex system. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of room for progress in the social coordination space. And so definitely, you know, on board with you there, Gregory, but I'm still skeptical in kind of our physical infrastructure space that we're that close to something like that. 
Um, so I just want to flag that kind of hesitation. And then you're saying, Matthew, that, well, what if we could um, virtualize much of our economy? Well, I also think, well, I mean, you know, if we could- We are, I mean, I'm saying we, we, we are, we, we, and, that, we and are, that's not necessarily counted for fully. Right, and we would like it to be healthier. So it's, you know, so people are playing, you know, are positively motivated to compete in a healthy way or, you know, whatever, but, but that only, to me, that still only goes so far. You know, we still need heat, we still need food, we still need, you know, physical stuff in order to survive. Um, and, you know, large, for example, larger densities are, are kind of problematic in a sense that they're kind of, you know, incredibly disconnected from their source of sustenance. I mean, their land footprint for everything that they need to go in, you know, is humongous, many times larger than the city itself. And, you know, all of the waste that has to be basically taken out of it. And, you know, I, I think there are processes, you know, with technology that we can recycle some of those things, but I guess, I don't know, I, I'm just flagging kind of both of these kind of skepticisms or hesitations to, to what you guys are saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, we're stuck in many ways with the path dependent infrastructure that we have um, as a foundation from where we, where we go from here. I mean, that's like kind of a tautology. It has to be that way. The question is, you know, how do we actually begin um, alleviating some of those, uh, some of those constraints uh, given our capacity to design novel patterns of, of behavior, of energy usage, of food creation? Uh, I mean, I don't think there's, there's necessarily any fundamental limit on why a city, and I'm not saying the best form of agriculture is, uh, you know, three-dimensional farming in in sort of uh, enclosed spaces. I'm not like I don't I don't necessarily think that there is a singular way that we should prescribe, but I do think that it's possible to have much higher density food production systems um, within high density urban landscapes as well. Um, and I think that to some extent, as cities experience the side effects of the lack of resilience you're speaking of, you know, we're going to see more of that. Um, that takes time. Again, the question is, does it happen fast enough? I don't know. On the just general question of like where we are with respect to uh, energy innovation, I, I do think it's kind of fascinating that like I know it's always, you know, <laughs> there's many jokes about the fact that nuclear fusion is, is always almost here. I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to track um, what's going on in that space. I mean, like we've, we've mm -hmm. gone past, it seems like we have pretty solid models in terms of going past break even. Uh, the recent tests that were done on the sort of superconducting magnet, I think it was, that's supposed to enable the, the next generation of, uh, of actually energy positive tests. This is in this is MIT tests that yeah. I read about a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work or not, but if they come with, you know, if they drop positive results on that, that's a pretty monumental moment in human history. Um, for, I'm not saying that's necessarily good or bad. I'm just saying that the um, the potential of humans has uh, to, to sort of manipulate matter and energy has once again taken a, a kind of nonlinear uh, leap upward. Yeah. Uh, the question of whether we have the attendant wisdom to manage that yeah. is another question. But yeah. um, I mean, I guess three questions would come up with that. So, so one, I agree that it would be a monumental leap, and you know, I'm rooting for it. I think if we could, you know, if fusion came online, that would be a great thing. Um, you know, one, you know, how quickly could we scale it up? Um, what would be the political implications of it in terms of kind of, you know, how power is organized? Um, two, 
without kind of a, a, a you know sub, you know and also a leap in social coordination technology would it just speed up the rate of extraction of material resources and biodiversity loss and and things of that nature and three um, it would produce electricity uh, but there are still hard limits to what we can electrify in terms of everything you know our, our economy requires it would definitely make it make a lot of the challenges easier. Um, are there hard? I mean, there, there are, there are, there are sort of thresholds that don't make any sense given the incentive landscape right now, but yeah. injecting a technology such as fusion creates massive incentive yeah. for electrification um, that doesn't exist at the moment. It couldn't be taken like that. That doesn't factor in, I don't think into those current equations or those current, um, those current assessments of, uh, yeah, I mean, not I'm not talking about electric systems. vehicles, you know, or, you know, uh, electric yeah. key pumps and things like that. I mean, You're talking I'm about heavy industry, about our, sure. our heavy yeah. industrial processes, yeah. um, you know, mining, smelting, uh, fabrication, uh, heavy transport, things like that, like that, you know, yeah, I mean, it would be great if I think, you know, people, there, there is some progress being made in those areas, but but we're not anywhere close to, you know, to, to being able to run the whole economy on electricity. That could change. I don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to know in terms of how close we are uh, linearly. It definitely doesn't seem like we're close um, right. given the sort of percentage of mm. um, percentage of mechanized processes that presently leverage um, batteries to, uh, to function. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to, I mean, this is the interesting thing about the history of human ingenuity is that almost everyone who tries to make predictions about what technologies are going to look like, you know, in the, in the quote unquote far future uh, is made to look quite foolish. And that far future is, you know, increasingly compressed given uh, the acceleration we've seen. Um, now, I'm not saying any of that is inherently good or bad. Uh, again, I think it's sort of that that always falls back. It's, we cycle back to the other types of constraints, the macro constraints we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I do, though, I mean, I guess if I'm going to say, where do I place my fundamental hope? I don't necessarily think that any of it is, um, you can't move the needle in a, in a truly positive or more adaptive, let's say more adaptive direction, um, mm -hmm. where you can't, you can't move in a more adaptive at least I don't believe we can move as a species in a more adaptive direction without better technologies to represent value and mediate the flow of uh, value and energy uh, yeah. between human between human minds and like human yeah. hearts and human subjective experiences. Like and living right? systems and like ecosystems, animals, microbes, yeah. which are all also sentient parts of the biosphere that need to have some. Sure. So, yeah. so are we gonna like are we gonna like track all the animals in the forest and like have you know different stress levels go above like <laughs> well they're <laughs> gonna start like wild you know wildlife predators different people have different ideas about that I, I tend yeah. to be more minimalist in terms of like what you actually try to measure and track but I think sure. you know there are ways to sort of like uh, create space. For, for that in the eco for sure. in the information signaling system that is the niche, niche construction affordance. Yeah. Well, it's on you. Do whatever you want, buddy. <laughs> Enjoy your life. <laughs> you yeah. have this much space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I guess there's two, my mind is going in two different directions. One is sort of, do we really need, one is a question. Do we really need uh, to continue the rate of heavy industry that we currently have? Um, you know, is the apocryphal well, we, statement. We want to scale up, we want to scale up renewable energy technology by orders of magnitude, right? Or, I mean, not, not well, maybe an order of magnitude. I think, you know, well, that's, do, a lot of, that's, a con, that's a lot of concrete. That's a lot of steel. That's a lot of heavy, heavy transport. That's a lot of mining. That's a lot of smelting. That's a lot of, that's a lot of land area that's covered by solar panels and wind turbines. I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm, well, but I guess my question, this is apocryphal, right? Or it's not even apocryphal. It's just, I don't know the data behind it, but you know, I think Buckminster Fuller famously said that you know, in the 70s, we had extracted enough material resources and had enough sort of capability that if we focused on efficiency, we could main, achieve and maintain spacefaring civilization with no more primary extraction and industry based on primary extraction. So, so I mean, that's a statement. I have no idea if that yeah. stands up to the face, I bet people would argue about it. I bet some people think that that's true and could cite evidence. And I bet other people think that it's yeah. not true. And well, if he thought, I mean, like it's, uh, there, there are some things that we require in our current um, technology, like especially information technology-based economy at the moment that just weren't being ext extracted almost at any scale uh, at that point in time in terms of rare metals that are in our, our computers and smartphones and, and, and that kind of technology. So, but I mean, I think that the cue is probably, you know, given, yeah given what he was given what he looked around and saw in terms of the inefficiencies of his time he was probably making a, a statement similar to what we're talking about today which is can the processes can can those processes like the outputs and the inputs can they be arranged differently such that they are cyclically regenerative um and then the question is always again why are we doing it or not doing it and i think we keep falling we keep going back like it always is going to bottom out in like humans as as life forms that are seeking um seeking to basically have their needs met in the most efficient way possible locally and not always considering um more global context in space or time and to the extent that we can create systems that allow us to bring more information across those spatio-temporal frames of reference into our lives such that we're still feeling satisfied and fulfilled, uh, but are increasingly able to ratchet down the sort of unmanaged externalities. You know, I think that's, at least to my mind, the best hope that we have. Um, yeah. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. I don't think any one mind can know how that's going to mm -hmm. happen because it's going to be an emergent process of many minds who care about it, focusing their time and energy and lives toward it. Uh, but I don't see how we ever get there if we don't develop the tools to represent reality with, with not just greater fidelity, but also in a way that resonates with human nature such that we care in a pragmatic way about these domains beyond ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I'm on board with both of you. I mean, Gregory, you know, I'm generally, you know, tend to think that, Hey, if you can, you know, build a passive solar home instead of buying solar panels, that's, that's great, right? If you can, um, 
I don't know if, if you can use wood heat, although that could be problematic instead of electric heat pump or, you know, uh, oil furnace or natural gas furnace. That's, that's probably good. Right. And, and to your point, Matthew, um, you know, one, one area that I find hopeful is the Cosmo local production um, movement, uh, like open source ecology. And, you know, there's many others now uh, where they're basically trying to do exactly that. I mean, they're trying to localize production, use as much locally sourced materials as possible, but you have this global commons kind of information space of designs and um, uh, things of that nature. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm in favor of localizing as much as possible. Uh, th there are some things that, you know, like electronics that could probably never be totally localized, um, but that's the multi-scaler, you know, th that's, that's multi-scale localism. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's the interesting thing is as far as we know with our, our current technology today, like this process of ephemeralization, we don't know its limits. Right, that's another Bucky Fuller idea: the ephemeralization, the idea that you know the way that we computed information just a hundred years ago was essentially, or maybe even less than that, even less than that, was with machines the size of you know entire buildings. Um, yeah at least hypothetically, when they were initially first designed. And then when we instantiated them, they got slightly smaller, slightly smaller, slightly smaller. So what is the boundary to that process? I don't know. And is it something that can be done locally? Um, it's unclear, but it does seem like there's a trade-off in terms of, um, yes, you can ephemerize the physicality, but as you do so, it seems like the energy demands also kind of go up. Uh, and so it might be the case that it is possible to make a phone with um, with the, the resources that you have just on your own land. Uh, but it also requires an extremely high amount of, of, of energy and knowledge. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but that might be possible. Uh, then the question is like, well, do we think that that is part of this equation of more energy, just feeding more useless consumption or not? Mm -hmm. And I, then I think we fall back again to, well, why are people building what they're building? Um, mm -hmm. are they, are they building the phone to become addicted to uh, short-term consumptive patterns or are they building the, the piece of technology to tap into the energy and information of a network that cares about something more sustainable? Um, and I don't think that that's, that's not in the equations, right? Like that's not, it, it's, it's, it's in the sort of culture and in the values and in the way that we shape those across time, um, which do seem to be changing. I mean, we're part of that conversation and, we're trying to figure out that out, and we're net, we're finding people throughout the world who are also part of that process. And we don't know what's going to come of it, but yeah. we it, it mean it means something that we're sort of all interested in dedicating a lot of time, energy, and our lives toward that, right? Yeah. Um, in ways that I don't think have been, in ways that certainly weren't that popular throughout most of human history. Hmm. So. So, I mean, I, it's, 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 it's like, it's just sort of fascinating place we've gotten ourselves to. Jason, I'm just curious about your reflection. I mean, I think it seems like there's sort of broad agreement, but may, maybe slight different difference of approach, but maybe not. I, I don't know. It's like, maybe it's sort of like, maybe the difference is, in emphasis or in what do we think we need to hear or other people need to hear in order to sort of 
um, engage with the present moment. <laughs> so it's, you know, like the parable of the blind men standing around the elephant sort of scenario, yeah. describing a different piece of things. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, you know, what, how does this all land with you at the end of the day? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I think we've all agreed that the future is uncertain. Um, and, you know, I, both of what you're talking about, you know, um, you know, in terms of social, you know, improvements in social coordination, monetary system and improvements in technology, you know, I, I will welcome any and all breakthroughs uh, in these areas. Um, but I, I also, I think in terms of emphasis, you know, I, I tend to, you know, also, also listen to the people who are saying that, you know, things are collapsing now, right? And it's not equally distributed. Um, and, you know, um, our timeline is pretty short. Um, but I also agree that, you know, dwelling or becoming nihilistic doesn't do anybody any good. Um, and so I think all we can do is, you know, work, work on where we feel called. And as, you know, as the, the challenges come, you know, build our, you know, adapt and build our adaptive capacity, you know, is term that, that Matthew, I believe coined, um, you know, what, else, what, else, what other options do we have, right? We're gonna, you know, we might have, uh, next year we might have a severe energy shortage. Okay, we're gonna have to adapt, right? Um, it's gonna be really hard for a lot of people. Um, and perhaps something, you know, some new kind of, you know, it, 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 it will prod evolution, you know, in some direction towards, you know, something that's more sustainable in the longer run. Uh, I do think it's going to be the next couple decades are going to be extremely difficult for a lot of people. Um, and there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. Uh, I, 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 I hope that doesn't happen, but, you know, that, that just seems to be the reality of the situation. Uh, and so, you know, I, I try and keep one foot in like kind of the sense of tragedy. Uh, I think it's perhaps it's just a personality trait. Perhaps it's, you know, a religious trait. You know, I'm, I consider myself a religious thinker, even though I'm not currently part of religion, but I grew up with religion. Um, you know, it's kind of part of my sensibility, I think. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the doom or optimism, right? And then, you know, the, the other foot is, in, is in, the, in the optimism part. Yeah, I mean, I certainly resonate with the need to stay connected to grief and, um, I, I mean, both on the human scale, but also just like the world dies so that we can live. It's, you know, it's a constant process and that's a big thing. It's a big sacred uh, responsibility. So, I mean, I think that's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good, um, it's a healthy reminder you know, to yeah. sort of weave. Well, I mean, we, we are sort of that, we are part of, we can often lose sight of the fact that we are part of the emergent phenomenon that is life. We are of nature and we are bending back upon nature as all of nature before has bent back upon itself. The issue is whether or not we can do so in a way that continues the cyclicality uh, and regeneration, reemergence, and adaptive exploration of life. 
Um, and and I don't know, like it, it, again, it's uncertain. Uh, that being said, it certainly does seem to be the case that focusing on what we can create and the problems we can solve uh, creates a lot less noise for other people also trying to solve problems and, mm -hmm. and make progress on this than focusing on um, generating anger and heat and uh, and sort of extreme pessimism around the inevitability of uh, our futility, <laughs> the inevitability of our demise. Um, I do think suffering is going to be a part of our life. It always is a part of our life. It's part of, you know, I, I've written on that. I, I, my position on that is out there in terms of the fact that I think suffering is to some extent conserved much in the way that energy is conserved. Um, I, I think that we can't over-focus, like we have to both remain empathetic to the fact that suffering exists and understand or try to um, try to focus on what we can do about that suffering in the world um, or what is our calling uh, to do something about that suffering in the world but also not overextend ourselves such that yeah. the obsession with that suffering in the world overrides our capacity to actually act usefully in the world toward mm -hmm. these long-term regenerative visions uh, and I do think that that's something that we're not quite adapted to the the multifarious ways that we can suffer from information overwhelm and our emotions can be hijacked such that they drain the energy necessary to, to contribute and do our part for that longer vision. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard, but I, I try and I often fail myself to escape that sort of vortex of, of negative emotion, but on the good days, I don't. And uh, when I make any progress at all, toward those goals, it, it feels meaningful. And, mm -hmm. and I guess that's all I can do. And that has to be enough. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we can all relate to the fact that, you know, we're, we're all kind of uh, trying to bootstrap a homestead, right? Gregory, you just bought some land. Um, and I think we're all, we're all pretty, pretty, pretty young homesteaders, at least at our current spot. Um, and that's, for me, that definitely you know, just the physicality of being part of regenerative process um, and local provisioning um, in, a, in a very small sense, reducing a, a dependency on something that's uncertain um, in terms of supply chains, um, but just engaging with the ecology that is really restorative, right? And it's very, it puts me very much in the present, which um, I think is really helpful um, and, you know, keeps me grounded and all that um, to slightly shift gears a little bit, you know, one thing that I am concerned about is going back to kind of the, the information ecology and social coordination, um, you know, I fear that if we do have, you know, various, um, you know, various shocks to the system, uh, you know, I think people's initial tendency is to find a scapegoat, right? Is to, to find the enemy. Right, and you know, I, I'm seeing this online these days, and you know, I think COVID is honestly pretty tame compared to what might be coming down the line uh, in terms of you know shocks to our provisioning systems and our way of life. Um, and I, I worry that uh, you know, almost my great my greater worry is is how humans are going to respond to these kinds of stresses in terms of you know violence, warfare. Um, 
scapegoating, things like that. I'm curious if you guys have thoughts about, about, about those things. Yeah, could get pretty weird and pretty ugly. Yeah. It's not unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> to keep happening. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, did you guys, did you guys read Neil Stevenson? Uh, you read um, the, oh gosh. He's one of those authors that I know I should read and everyone talks about Snow Crash. Uh, but I just mm. haven't read him. I mean, Snow Crash is amazing. Yeah. And, and so is Cryptonomicon. And I, you know, I hear rumors that yeah. Neil Stevenson invented Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His, I, I enjoyed his Baroque cycle. And uh, I love the Baroque cycle. I, I mean, all of, I love the Baroque cycle. I just love, I, I never wanted it to end. It's just so fun. <laughs> it's so, yeah. so fun. Um, he wrote, um, I guess it's, it was like Dodge in Hell or something. Like he wrote a, these last, it was one of his more recent books. And in it- That's the one where things go like fully into the virtual world and it sort of takes on pretty significant religious undertones as well. Yeah, well, yeah. Like this guy- yeah, I, uploads, I haven't read that one yet. This guy uploads himself yeah. like into- heaven <laughs> and uh, you know and it gets and it's weird and amazing and all the ways that neil stevenson is it's not uh cliche at all it's quite thought-provoking mm. but anyway in that people who are in the real world in in the midst of all of that taking place i think in fact it's the one before dodge and hell whichever one is the one right before that uh, there is a world in which people have reamdy was that it was reamdy right yeah yeah, yeah, Reemdy. Yeah, yeah. So, did you read Reemdy? Yeah. Yeah. So, people have weaponized, like, just like is happening. A lot of it was just centering around just like a thought experiment around the weaponization of, you know, fake news, basically. And, you know, in the in that hypothetical world, they fake a nuclear attack in the United States and they pull it off and it's never really clear is it fake or it's not fake but it seems like it was faked right and still people believe that there was like a nuclear attack on U.S. soil even though there wasn't <laughs> and there's like a whole thing around it anyway there's like this fascinating um just yeah I, he did a beautiful job I thought of sort of of really like weaving together the, the the zeitgeist of um and which i don't think is which i think is different in quality and maybe magnitude than any other time in history but isn't it also isn't unique like if you think about other moments of history people were getting fanatical about beliefs that likely had shaky grounding in reality <laughs> Mm -hmm. This is like a part of the human experience that's, I think, pretty mm -hmm. common and pretty ubiquitous. It's so... And, and quite vulnerable to attack. Yeah, it's super vulnerable to attack and, and actively being manipulated constantly with a whole science and lots of, you know, um, lots of money and, you know, lots of compute power behind manipulating yeah. people to get upset at each other and get fanatical and and do various things it's like politics or, or even simply i mean i that i think that all exists and additionally i think 
you know, something I, I wonder about is, you know, to the extent that these challenges mount, because um, there's this question, right? Like, uh, if, if we are accelerating toward situations that are going to require a great deal more of us if we are to get through them, um, are we moving toward them by building resilience or are we moving toward them um, in ways that uh, are, are delaying the inevitable uh, such that it only becomes more inevitable and such that we are less prepared for it when it arrives. And, you know, I do think I'm not going to- doomer optimism, like, uh, well, you know, to the- The only reason I'm, the, well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's necessarily like where I come down, but I, like, I, it's an interesting question, especially through the lens of our relationship to technological networks and virtual systems, virtual representations of reality. Um, possibilities of virtual, like one can imagine layers of technology that feedback positively upon the physical embodied uh, world of energy networks and infrastructure, right? Such as we've been debating and, and talking about in terms of are our informational networks feeding back representations of reality and enabling behaviors that actually allow us to make that adaptive move or are they uh, creating spaces that satisfy short-term needs or, or, or tap into short-term extractable quantities in the human psyche um, such that they're actually closing off those avenues to adaptation? Like if we have, if we require a certain critical threshold of human beings to be actively working on this problem, like a sort of coarse-grained way of looking at it. But if that is true, um, what does it mean if that critical threshold might be getting siphoned off into you know, addiction on social media or addiction in virtual reality uh, games or or whatnot, right? Because you can create, you can tap into the human mind, you can study uh, how people derive a predictable sense of accomplishment, and you can provide a more satisfying or meaningful experience virtually if you study that mind and implement worlds that give people what they want along those dimensions. Um, that human energy can be siphoned into that space as opposed to, you know, potentially otherwise applied solving these problems. So, you know, that's something that, that I don't know, I, it's a question that I ask myself with respect to the sort of digital systems we create and, you know, something that's plagued me and plagued my mind since the initial creation of, of Facebook and Twitter and, and all of that. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I think that if I do see indications showing that there's a positive path as well, it's emerging in this space of crypto amongst all the chaos and noise. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm still, I'm still not sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that, that's to me, I mean, Tristan Harris, like that's his whole, <laughs> that's, that's his whole thing, right? Is, is kind of the, the incentive structure of social media and the fact that it's an ad-based model, it, you know, it harvests your attention, you know, to, to sell things. And so that, that's fundamentally a problem right there. Uh, it might not be the only problem. Uh, it might, might not be the only, you know, variable towards polarization, for example, but, but that's a big one. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people, you, you, you guys probably know more than me because you're, you're more locked, tapped in these spaces than I am, I think, you know, but it's a matter of how many, you know, what percent of the population is, is moving over towards, I don't know, Holochain or, I don't know, maybe something like Urbit uh, or, you know, some, some new kind of, uh, informational, social informational space that has fundamentally different incentives. I, I, I'm curious what you guys, 
know or <laughs> like like what what you're hopeful for in terms of alternative alternative platforms yeah in terms of alternative platforms i've seen such platform i mean the, the, the platforms are hopeful but i haven't seen them feeding back into physical reality robustly yet yeah is my shortest answer to that i think though that especially in terms of sort of a culture of resilience uh yeah. these systems like urbit and holochain especially they take very different philosophical models which we don't have to get into here but i think what <laughs> yeah. they do for, they're so different <laughs> yeah well they're at opposite they're opposite ends of the philosophical completely so opposite i'm, I'm just wondering if it's the horseshoe theory where they're, they're so opposite that they're actually similar or or if they're there's fundamentally different assumptions about civilization like yeah. we'll, we'll, well, we'll there's, there's, there's definitely there's definitely an element of the horseshoe theory going on because of the fact that um within the frame of reference of people who think at all about resilience um mm -hmm. the points on the spectrum of sort of extreme hierarchy and extreme like let's say like you know emergent uh, uh peer to peer emer emer emergent dynamics based on pure voluntary coordination in, in the sort of um, world of hollow chain that can be like completely divergent and, and anyone can alter code and take it to a different space. And as long as they can get people to go along with that change, they can sort of have their own little microcosm of, of rules-based reality. Um, com completely different ends of the spectrum. But one interesting thing is that they are both solving for the fact that they can be run on fully distributed systems that are you know mesh capable um, could potentially be bootstrapped in in local communities or, or local bioregions or, or, or grids. Potentially um, run on much less energy, and okay. they run they can run on, on very low energy profiles. Um, so yeah, or, uh, footprints. Um, so I think like in that sense, like they do come together. But all like their perspectives on what's valuable and and yeah. human relations and uh, the way a system should be designed are, are quite different. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. I, I, I mean, in a way, I, I sort of feel like, I mean, Twitter's a very interesting experiment, right? I, I, I kind of, it's possible that, you know, like the crypto, like the crypto is going to like take over Twitter. Um, that is a possibility it's like a, it's like maybe an outside possibility but it's possible that you know there's like enough like jack and the larger sort of twitter hierarchy i think are are interested enough and like they're and it drives enough it's like enough of an economic flywheel for twitter as well that there's a possibility that it's not actually it's like web three eats web two on a couple of these websites, basically, and it starts to transform the economic relationships and like the, the, the profile and, you know, the attention economy transforms yeah. a little bit as well. I think it was it like eight, 2018 or 2019. I think like Dorsey was saying something about a, a project blue or something along those lines that was supposed to supposed to create a vision of like decentralized, like the next generation of like Twitter protocol or, or sort of conversational protocol that could be decentralized i haven't heard much noise about that well i think um, they just like who would want to work with twitter on that i think all the well, exactly. people are not working on it <laughs> probably so 
<laughs> but I mean, this is an interesting question is like, and I don't know, I don't think a lot, I don't think the, the next generation of, I don't think it, 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 it strikes me as, it strikes me as unlikely that the kind of information that needs to be brought into online communication is going to come out of the economics and constraints of a VC backed uh, corporation, right? It seems very unlikely that um, they are going to uh, deviate from their sort of profit optimization function in a way that actually brings in the kind of signaling that would be more resilient and robust and feedback into like more positive human communication. Because they also have this very centralized mindset. Like when, even when they realize a problem, well, what do they do? Okay, so YouTube's gonna append like messages questioning the validity of a given idea or provide a, a piece of context from a central point of authority. And what's that gonna do? It's gonna trigger a bunch of like immune system responses in the sort of the mimetic space in people's heads and they're gonna trust them less. It's gonna cause more division. So, yeah, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a shit show. <laughs> or like Facebook or Twitter, they, you know, when someone violates their central maxims uh, or their central sort of moral theory, uh, which is vague enough, uh, they, they ban them. And then that generates a bunch of dialogue in terms of the fact that, well, why? Is there any particular rule set? And then even when there is a rule set, it's still interpretable and no one's going to, no one's going to agree on that interpretation. So fundamentally, the only, it's not even an answer, but a more adaptive response to that is, you know, decentralized program protocols with decentralized uh, representations of people's credibility, of people's, you know, expertise or contributions, uh, modes of analyzing, you know, how people should have access to different subsets of the network that are much more um, fine-grained than a, like a ban or a mute or a block. Um, I don't know. But is, is Twitter going to give us that? I, I doubt it. You guys ever like play with, um, for, for a while, I was using Scuttlebutt a lot, Secure Scuttlebutt. And, um, yeah. you know, I don't know. Do you guys ever, that, that particular, there's a lot of, there was, I mean, I had a lot, a lot of fun there and it was uh, like pretty active, you know, it was a pretty active community. I haven't checked in in a while. So is it still pretty active? Yeah, I, I poked around in there a little bit, but I didn't, I didn't like, you know, life changed quite a bit. And I moved out here and I, um, Sort of left that thread open. Yeah, I haven't been back in a while. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, sorely under. <laughs> I, I need to be more curious about these other platforms. Like, I, I just, um, you know, I, I remember I got on Discord. I'm not saying Discord is anything <laughs> special or, or Discord or has all sorts of shit going on. It's crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I just I found that it was hard for me, given my current engagement with Twitter, which maybe is needs to be de decreased. Like I just couldn't maintain the the energy and the time necessary to keep up with, you know, ten Discord servers, right? Oh my god, <laughs> it's totally overwhelming to me. I, my yeah. life is a mess with like yeah. Slack and yeah. Discord and Telegram, Telegram and Twitter and Signal, yeah. and it's just like I'm like, you know, a little bit of email mixed in there. I'm like in a constant, just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, right, right, like. Yeah, I mean, whenever I start feeling kind of overwhelmed and disembodied, my my initial reaction is just um, well, either to get back on Twitter, which is not the right right <laughs> response, or it's to go outside. Um, yeah, but so speaking of, good. I find I find the latter of those two tends to work a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Going outside is good. Going I want to. I, I do want to give a shout out, you know, uh, to to our little doomer optimist space in terms of what you were talking about, Matthew of of 
you know, kind of bucking some of the, you know, the inherent incentives and creating a space where that's what people talk about is, you know, building resilience. Um, you know, it started, it started to go offline. People are meeting up in real life. Um, so there's, you know, there, I think that, you know, interesting adaptive, you know, things can emerge even in, you know, mm -hmm. these large corporate platforms with, with bad incentive structures. Um, it's not perfect by any means. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fighting along traditional left right lines among doomer optimists, which is kind of depressing, but I, I just wanted to throw that in there that, yeah, you know, in, in terms of anything that's, that's hopeful in terms of not only better incentive structures for social media platforms, but also becoming more embodied, like how is it actually manifesting in, in the world? Like that's like, a, to me, that's like a seed that, you know, is, uh, is, is nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this this conversation obviously emerged out of that context. Uh, yeah. We wouldn't know one another or, or be able to to talk about any of these topics yeah. to the extent that they could possibly um, facilitate positive change in the future without the context of Twitter. Um, yeah. It it requires a lot of energy to maintain positive space uh, or yeah. like healthy space within that very open network of Twitter that's constantly subject to. Um, let's say energy vampires moving around and <laughs> throwing, throwing daggers at you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's always, it's wonderful to see that community emerge in that space. And it's also, and I also hope that we find ways of um, bringing representation, like finding ways of sort of using these inspirational platforms that allow us to share attractive information with one another and, and sort of attractive images of what we're doing and actually tie that down into the actions and what they're laddering up to. Because I feel like there's a lot of energy that's like, like we're all making our positive changes in the world to some extent in these local realities. Mm -hmm. It does seem like it's hard to see how they're connecting or laddering up together into yeah. more coherent forms of uh, either expression or potential. If you want to like translate that energy into political change for example, um, not that like it should be immediately political because there are dangers in that, but like if you do feel like you get to a point where like you could have a stable network that could operate on the political level, especially locally where you can make much more change happen um, over shorter time horizons, like that would be cool, right? Um, yeah. I would love to see that emerge more out of this space, but yeah. yeah. No, me too, me too. I think, I think it's still very early days and we'll see. Um, I, I don't think we're anywhere near you know um you know larger you know emergent impact coordinated impact um you know that's that's still a long ways away or it's it's not or maybe that you know you mentioned the time thing you know maybe linearly it's a long ways away but you know perhaps perhaps uh we're heading into super linear exponential territory there's yeah. so much I, mean, I don't know like do you, do you think there's an opportunity for that community in terms of splintering off into like is the gravity of twitter too high for a community such as that to create its own space that could be well, self-sustaining it's, it's too it's too dispersed right so i mean people are starting to meet up in person but it's like i you know like like ashley did her summer tour visiting a bunch of different people and and stuff but that was like her that she had met on twitter that she had met on twitter right and she ended up you know, actually going to visit like, I don't know, half a dozen people or something. I don't know that, that, that probably she met on Twitter, uh, including me. Um, you know, I, I've had like, 
like three or four people come visit me in my house that, that are just like, hey, you know, or, or mutuals or, you know, or like what you're posting, you know, I, I happen to be in the area. Um, so that's interesting. Um, but it's very, still very kind of dispersed. You know, everybody's kind of, like you said, doing their own, their own thing in their own homestead or community or bioregion or whatever. Um, and um, I'm not really sure what the next step is because there are those, there is that spatial limitation. Is it creating, you know, is it migrating over to a better platform that, you know- Pump you know, some NFTs. What's that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. NF NFTs. Um, yeah. um, I, I mean, there's, it's, it also, I mean, it does seem like there's opportunity at the intersection of sort of enactment of these ideas in our, in our embodied lives, our local realities, um, as well as um, the sort of almost new niche that's calling forth, uh, calling forth the need of novel, uh, novel um, educational mechanisms, yeah. novel communities around education and, and sharing knowledge. Um, yeah. That's that's pragmatic, applicable, and um, I guess necessarily like non-formally credentialed. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, there's been some talk about that. There's been some talk about um, Ashley in particular. Um, like she, she wants to get a series of like courses going basically where, or workshops where you, you go to like, you know, the, the homesteader extraordinaire in the Northwest or something, and they give a workshop or something. I mean, that's, that's one idea that's, that's thrown around. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could be cool to start thinking about how to, how to get a prototype of one of these uh, meetups yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm like, doesn't that already happen? Isn't that just like using Twitter to market your Homesteading yeah. workshop. Uh, that's how I made a living for many years. Not on right. Twitter. I, I, that was my pre, that was before yeah. I decided to use Twitter. <laughs> I think it kind of does. Although like learning and laddering up and synthesizing information is, has not been the goal of that thus far. I mean, it's been like local, the, the goal has been like local economic viability, which is a prerequisite. Mm -hmm. But the question is like, how much of that is then getting, um, synthesized into something that can further well i don't know i mean i guess i'm an alum of guy university and that was definitely the goal it was like yeah. action learning community of practice global local sort of like um, i think it's, i think it's just a matter of of the intensity like how many people are doing it right and i think that has i mean i'm not sure if it's exploded in the last 10 years i mean twitter like homestead twitter and youtube and everything <laughs> it, it you know, it makes it seem like there's more and more people who have skills to share and are reaching yeah. audience. Um, it's relative to what it was, it's exploded, but relative to the entire scale of, of the rest of the economy and the rest of the number of people on the planet, it's still yeah. small, very small. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, so I can't, I can't tap into a network and, for example, and necessarily find somebody in, you know, within a 50 mile radius that you know, is, is offering something that is extremely useful, you know, for me in the community, you know, at least through an online platform, you know, I could That's find what Hilo is trying perhaps, to do. Perhaps find it locally. And I have, you know, like, like they're, they're, you know, uh, you know, I am learning about initiatives, but they're not, you know, it's, it's, it's word of mouth locally, right? It's, um, uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's still, I think there's a lot of just densification that, can happen, right? To plug, I, 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 to plug I, I, that, you know, you know, just in terms of 
the conversation, the, the question about where are there, you know, platform experiments, um, you know, Hilo, which was a, which was an attempt at an alternative to like Facebook um, and was purchased by the Holochain community and then open sourced. Um, the team, Ter the Terran Collective team that's been maintaining that code base, they've added features for like local discoverability of groups and like swapping and skill sharing and other sort of pieces. It doesn't seem to be getting lots of traction. We've actually been funding them to do some work related to farming, like, act, like creating uh, user interfaces for land stewards to be swapping information and also be doing sort of like like getting produce and other features out into local networks just to kind of you know have an open source user interface that's kind of like could potentially harvest exodus from <laughs> centralized extractive platforms um, yeah. but it doesn't feel to me like it's getting much traction i mean they're they're doing pretty good work the features are okay but there's not a flywheel and part of that is i mean I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I could go into why that is, but, you know, it's cool. Their approach is cool. You know, they want to sort of have an open user interface social network that can then plug into a variety of different sort of state approaches to state machines or statefulness, whether it's Holochain or Cosmos in our case. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that they, they're, they're like on the urbit. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's interesting. I mean, it, I see just a lot of fragmentation. You know, yeah. So you have Hilo, you, Ashley's like, oh, I want to build software. I was kind of like cautioning her against yeah. doing that given. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I and mean, there's like Nature Hub, which, you know, I, um, talked to I, don't, see, I don't know Nature Hub. Yeah. There's, there, there's just, there's, that's the thing is there's, there's kind of a groundswell. Everybody's, it feels like at this stage, and that both gives me hope because yeah. it's like, it's the same. I see tons of people doing experiments at DAOs and Discord servers and Hilo and people at this and that. And there's all this stuff happening. It's very di di dispersed and yeah. it's like there's not anything that's like pulling everybody in. From, from a point of view of somebody who's who's kind of a Luddite when it comes to crypto space, like and really alternative platforms, you know, it, it, it seems very overwhelming to me. Right, especially if you're not a developer, um, yeah. and you know, I, I would like to, <laughs> you know, improve upon those skills. But you know, most people, um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it goes back to the, you know, what's what's, you know, what percent of the population, you know, every community has their own developer that can link into this, you know, this 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 ecosystem and and translate it for their community. That that might work. Um, but yeah, user interface. Well, I, I, ideally, ideally, yeah, ideally that should become invisible, right? Yeah. Ideally, the the experience should be something that people can interact with naturally, um, mm -hmm. and that the underlying protocols and the underlying nuts and bolts of which currencies are doing what is not something that the average person has to think about when they're trying to um, facilitate a task that they care about mm -hmm. in their life. Um, but it's just so early, right? It's like just like the yeah. internet at the very beginning of the internet, the vast majority of people would never make contact if they didn't have access to like a college Unix or Unix system at their at their campus um, or in their sort of physics research or R&D lab in the right. government. Well, I mean, um, yesterday when, when Facebook went down for a few hours, you know, people were talking about how a lot of like small scale farmers rely on Facebook 
yeah. to a Facebook marketplace to sell their stuff, you know, or a lot of people rely on Craigslist, right? And so it, just, it might just be a matter of time, you know, where there's this adoption curve and, and yeah. it just ha so happens that Craigslist and Facebook, you know, that's where most people have caught up to. Um, oh. well, I think we're sort of in this, um, just like any adaptive system, right? You have this divergent mm -hmm. phase, especially when you have a, when you're toward the end of a prior paradigm that's, that's, that's struggling to keep up with the pressures that have been induced by its own inertia, um, you sort of get this grasping for threads and, and sort of like this explosion of possibilities, most of which are never going to become reality or, or the, the primary way we interact with the world, but they're all the possible lifeboats. It's, it's unclear which one we're going to jump on. But it does seem it, it is encouraging to see so much experimentation in the space. Um, you know, I'm also I've been curious in terms of the kind of things that could be useful and just getting people's feedback about what that is like seeing local communities of homesteaders or people who are growing food, uh, people who care about uh, regenerative uh, concepts. The idea of actually tracking inputs and outputs and understanding like what are you taking in and what are you producing? Um, obviously we do this to some extent each uh, in our own like, you know, economies uh, yeah. going all the way back to the origin of the world or work uh, in terms of like the management of the sort of flows and outflows of that home environment. Um, but we're not networking them together really. Uh, we're, we're not like creating context that might catalyze um, the more efficient use of resources or sharing or any of that. I, I would definitely recommend checking out um, Open Team and the work that like PharmOS and other groups mm -hmm. like that are doing, which is about creating sort of a farm, um, you know, database for yeah. inputs, outputs, productivity, all the rest of it, and sharing it. Is that for is that for large scale farming processes or larger, small? Farm? And there, you know, there's okay. a lot of work to make interoperability with light farm, which is for like small, really small organic farm operations. But farm OS is being used by, it's use, being used experiment. It's really like uh, an enthusiast software at this stage. It's like people who are trying to geek out on like su sustainable ag and are like, oh, we could, you know, get more information into our value exchanges if we did some things. And so, you know, and they're integrating with high, this is sort of like they're integrating with Hilo. At some point you guys should go check out Hilo.com. Like it's pretty usable. Like Jason, I think you'd find it usable. Like you can search yeah. locally, you can do events and groups and offers and other things. I mean, it's like a lot of the functionality that, that I think, you know, it's interesting. I think it could catch kind of an exodus and they're trying to integrate with PharmOS, for instance, and you know, our sign, other open source sort of um, data. Um, How is that spelled? Which one? Hilo. Uh, H-Y-L-O.com. I'm interesting to see if this does catch on because there is kind of a pushback in, you know, especially kind of homestead space about legibility uh, and, and what can actually be put into a database and what can't. Um, I definitely, you know, I definitely think that, you know, this kind of collection and sharing of information and data can be really useful, but I'm, 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 it'll be interesting to see like, what are, what are the constraints to that? Well, PharmOS has a horrible UX. Mm -hmm. I, it just, 
I mean, they're they're trying to improve, but it's just yeah. it, like I said, it's for like it's for like Linux, geeky farm, yeah, <laughs> Raspberry Pi. Yeah, I think I think Jason, like what, Jason, what you're getting at, or I, if I understand you correctly, I think mm -hmm. that you're pointing toward this idea of the fact that there are people who believe that there are not it, important yet non-quantifiable aspects of what they're doing, and therefore question the value of software in that respect is that is that what you're saying yeah yeah hmm. okay yeah so, but 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 is but are, is anyone making the case that that, so, so that, like, like, that actually using any like using digital technologies to encode what is possible is actually going to have an, a negative side effect net negative even if it um, acknowledges its limitations there's a few who I would think would, would argue that in, in this space. Um, I mean, so, you know, it's kind of the thesis of like seeing like a state, right? Uh, and like, you know, you can control populations if, if you can make them legible. And if you make something legible, that's, it's usually something that's easier to measure, right? And, and so you're actually leaving out a lot of kind of embodied contextual knowledge that, you know, again, can't be put in a database. I mean, I know, for example, like, um, recent Doom Optimist podcast with Josh Keeling, I think his last name. So he's an engineer by trade. He's like a software engineer, but he's basically, he made a statement, something like, you know, I, I don't want my, you know, small scale hobby farm or whatever to become, you know, quantifiable. Like there's just so many things going on, so many complex relationships that, um, and he's building it such that, you know, it's, it's, it would be too complex to put in a database, basically. Like that's his, <laughs> like that's yeah, how but I don't like. I, I guess I find I find that um, like interestingly enough, I find that unconvincing. We agree with it. Um, you, you what? I find that unconvincing because I deeply agree with it, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Which is what? Which is to say that I find that problem to be a fundamentally universal problem of yeah. the articulation or the, the compression of any aspect of reality into a representation. Totally. Um, and yet. And yet, our, and, yet, page on that, and, that. yet and well, but and, and yet our pragmatic, like of pragmatic necessity, we do still um, move forward in the world using uh, yeah. reduced frames of reference. And 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 I think we should limit. We should definitely acknowledge their limitation and never believe that you know our our map is the territory. That's always the that's always the temptation. And you know, being lured too deeply into that temptation has extremely negative side effects. And I agree that like. There are elements of what I'm doing here that I would never tell myself that I fully understand what's going on mm -hmm. if I were to measure them. Yeah. That being said, measuring them might still help me um, in my more intuitive relations with those processes. I, th I think of it like this, and, and there is like there's a whole strain of that pushback that I also am like, it kind of drives me nuts a little bit because it's so obvious. It's like, so I have a son, I have a daughter. Like, does me taking their temperature when they have a fever have any effect on the deep intrinsic love of these complex whole beings that I'm caring for? Yeah. Zero. It, it's just helpful because I know if they're getting towards a dangerous threshold in which action should be taken. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, most, many homesteaders, small scale farmers, you know, uh, get, you know, take soil measurements and you know, I guess what I'm saying is it'll be interesting to see rainfall measurements where, where that constraint arises and where that pushback arises, and 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 I don't oh. think we quite know what that balance is yet. Of right, yeah. you know, like like what are the key indicators that are 
relatively easy to measure um, that are useful, don't distort, don't have a distorting effect on the behavior of the person, or the picture It's recognized as a map, you know, um, you know, and how will that get worked out as, you know, as we, you know, have this quantification yeah. and networked, you know, networked quantification revolution. Right? And then also, I think it kind of goes back to some of the conversations we were having earlier. And also, you know, obviously the, the name Wendell Berry pops up in this community quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, he spoke quite, you know, at some length about the industrialization of agriculture and yeah. the sort of uh, the fact uh, like certain measurement problems that arise depending on um, what you value about this process. What is the purpose yeah. of a relationship with a productive system uh, that is an earth-based productive system? Is the process maximally efficient extraction just for human um, food production and consumption? Yeah. Or is the purpose um, to create a robust and sustainable ecology that like deepens our relationship to the complexity of the world while also sustaining us and providing a surplus that we can uh, use to sustain our own life processes, right? Like, well, the very, very different perspectives. Yeah. I don't necessarily, and like, I, I personally don't necessarily believe that like any amount of quantization necessarily leads us um, to focus only on extraction. It can, it certainly can. It, it yeah. has in the industrial frame of reference, but I don't think that's like a necessity as much as it is a, um, a way of consciously holding the purpose of, of use for that technology. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that there, there might be a, a bit of a conflation uh, in this space with quantification and what, what you're measuring and, who, you know, how that information is being used. And, and, you know, it's been misused in the past, right? The, the whole thesis, I haven't read Seeing Like a State, but from what I've heard secondhand, you know, it's, it's for central authorities to control the population, right? Or in, in the industrial, you know, transition that Wendell Berry uh, rails against um, it's it's basically you know to get farmers to abandon their traditional agricultural methods and the, the, all of the cultural values associated with that for a very you know a, a very um, you know for profitability you know just a, a, a very narrow metric of what value is and, and that, that kind of, that kind of goes to one of your things you're saying right at the beginning Matthew of like how do we measure value, right? And what time scale? Um, it would be fascinating to have like you having that conversation in a room with Wendell Berry, you know, and, and agreeing with him of like, yeah, they got the whole time scale wrong. They got the cultural value of food wrong. Um, it would be interesting to see what his pushback then would be. Okay, if, if we agree with all of this, you know, what is the domain of, you know, quantification and measurability? It would be interesting to, you know, to see that kind of conversation. You know, yeah. me, well, if you can get Wendell there on the phone, I would love to talk. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody can get him on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For, for me, I sort of see this world in which the like, so look, economy of scale was chosen out of um, economic pragmatism based on a set of conditions and circumstances and tools that that people have. Well, it's the same super linearity that, that cities get, right? It's the same, it's the same pattern. And, and people were like, we need to do this for what at the time were good reasons in their mind, et cetera, and they did it and, and it sucked. The results of that suck, maybe some 
some of the results of that were beautiful. I, I mean, there's also positives that have come out of that. I think a lot of, a lot of calories were produced. Exactly. I think it's worth noting <laughs> that uh, a lot of humans did a lot of things with that, yeah. with those calories. Yeah. Um, you know, now if you want to think about a world in which, you know, extraordinarily diversified ag agro ecosystems are feeding the majority of humans, you have to radically transform the way that harvesting takes place, the way that the supply system takes place, manufacturing changes, all of these things have to change. And software <laughs> turns out is really a powerful tool for, for managing a more complex less complicated, more complex set of logistics that arise out of complex agroecosystems. Meaning you can more viably manage sort of like a Cosmo local trading system where you, know, you can still get products to market, but you're only getting a small amount from a bunch of different farms and you're sort of able to appropriately value the work that goes into that and price it across different nested scales. Like I, I may not be explaining myself very well, but you can, I, I can I unless it's, unless it's running on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> no, no, but I like, I, I'd only bring up that point because it does speak to that same tension in terms of like these systems tend towards centrality because oh, of it can't happen on facebook i, I mean it can't yeah. happen on facebook yeah, but but yeah you can but, see but then we're but then we're stuck once facebook emerges we're stuck um with this very difficult problem in terms of like well something like holochain could handle that sort of uh multi-scale robust set of informational relationships you're talking about without having massive central points of failure right but we're left with this adoption problem of how to convince people that a short-term hit in efficiency is worth uh, the long-term resilience, right? And like, I mean, we're, we're deeply, well, that's like, where, deeply, and that's deeply where programmed against that. Just incentivize it all the way down. I mean, you know, like yeah. DeFi is brilliant. You know, they bootstrap liquidity, bring people on because they'll make lots of money, make the early people lots of money. I, I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's, that's where it's working, right? Like you're getting massive, like Europe, it's in, it's insane how many Gen X, Y, and Z Europeans are participating in the crypto economy. And it's, you know, it's a lot in the States too, but in Europe, it's like, it's a lot of humans who have gotten engaged with like the, like DeFi and they're, you know, like active. So there is some, and that's uh Anyway, I, there's some hope that I have in that, that, that you can sort of create the right, the, the, the challenge of course is, you know, we haven't brought up Cosmos. I actually think Holochain, I have yet to see anything work in Holochain. So I can, uh, I'll, I'll look into it again, but <laughs> I've yet to see working software. I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm not advocating necessarily for that as a solution. I'm just and all good, all good vibes to everybody. Hollow knots out there. I'm sorry. Sure, sure. That's upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the reason I'm bringing it up in that frame of reference is is as a um, sort of in the theoretical structure of what they're right. aiming. That's for. what they desire. They desire to have a yeah. world in, in in which, and I think Cosmos has done it. Actually, done it. 
So like you can create a sovereign state machine that can interoperate with another sovereign state machine that could be a state machine of one or a state machine of a million or a state machine of a billion. And you can set your rules and interoperate between. So they actually, it's like it's working. There's billions of dollars of interactions taking place right now. You know, well, are they also, are they also focused on, on building uh, like a hardware mesh capacity alongside that or yeah, yeah there's a bunch of community like... members working on the hardware like open hardware side of things and like being able to run everything off of raspberry pis and you know just you know it's yeah there's a bunch of people working on that um doing yeah. doing that stuff there's also a lot that's just happening on server in server you know server farms server centers cloud i mean it's sort of like really heterogeneous so there's people but, i mean i, I ask because it's interesting to me like i like as i move through the community spaces in this area where you know i'm around more people who are, are farmers than i've ever been around like as a percentage of my interactions in, in my entire life by far um and it's a varied group of people and i think even here where i'm at they're probably on the younger side uh, based on like what I've seen in terms of the average age of the American farmer. Uh, and they're more technologically literate than the average um, small farmer, at least. I mean, I know like large scale farms can get pretty technologically advanced, but um, it's hard. It's still hard for me to imagine having conversations about crypto, about incentive systems, mapping to these exploratory networks or to think how we might um, incentivize adoption uh, and, and piggyback that onto uh, pragmatic concerns that they really care about in terms of their day-to-day -day realities. They just have to make, make money. I mean, I, 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 we have a bunch of farmers in our network and they're there because they can get paid for carbon. <laughs> mm -hmm. But probably, I mean, they're probably fairly larger scale than, right? Totally. We don't have any really capability to deal with small homesteads yet. Although, yeah. Somebody could create a system to do that. It would just be a, it would be a crediting and value system that isn't doesn't plug into the institutional space. And currently, we're like pulling value out of the institutional awareness that they have to price carbon and sure. landing it into land stewards where we yeah. can appropriately quantify it in a way that everybody accepts. You know, so it's like a, so there's like social consensus. So that. The real missing piece is like if you have a constituency that has value that would like to value the positive externalities of homesteading, you know, and you can think of a way to sort of like measure, have consensus around that measurement, you can pop up a crediting system for that and like deploy it openly. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the that's the theory. But right now, like we're not, I would love to actually do a bunch of experimentation and incentives and play around with the permaculture community actually but that's not been the uh current like you know weak link it's like there needs to well, be because of, i mean fundamentally there. once yeah. again because of the cons of scale right like if you can get like if you're convincing large-scale farmers to join maybe you only need 15 successful conversations if you're yeah. talking about you know small-scale homesteaders yeah. uh thousands who, who thousands. are oftentimes maybe like techno skeptical and they're like i don't really know and, and it's a lot more work because you have to generate a new social consensus about the value system that everybody could adopt if they wanted to i mean yeah there's a lot of hurdles there so we haven't been doing that this is kind of a, a tangent i'm curious i mean i know there's been some controversy in kind of the carbon farming space about like 
had, you know, like quantification. Um, you know, there was like an article in Quartz or something that was kind of very kind of skeptical of sequestering carbon in, in the soil long-term. And, you know, uh, and also, you know, there's also the criticism of incentivizing bad behavior. Like people can just, oh, like I can just buy offsets because I'm rich. Uh, so I don't fly my private plane and I can buy offsets and, you know, uh, and, you know, especially if well, it's, so there, there's a lot of people, like there's a critique that's arising that's like, you know, that the offsets and the carbon farming is, it, it's, it, it's not as it's robust. It's not good enough. Yeah, of course it's not. Yeah. It's a tiny step in the right direction. You yeah. know, it's like, of course it's not good enough. Yeah. I don't know, okay. from my perspective, yeah. it's like, yeah, of course it's not good enough. Yes, you have to also reduce emissions. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, yes, it's like soil science is complex. Like, yes, it's, you can't predict drought and soil permanence is hard to, to you know, and you, so you have to do complex risk calculations and create buffer pools and things like that. Like, yeah, it's hard to do it's not easy to do well it seems like i mean it, it seems like it's it's going to be universally true that there there no matter what we do there will always be viable critiques but that's totally. not necessarily that's not necessarily a good reason for us to all spend our time being critics yeah yeah no, I, I find yeah, the criticism my only point of bringing it up is I, I was just curious of of how how you're navigating kind of that set of critiques not I, uh, I mean from my perspective at the, at the highest level what is the most important is that a group of humans get together and they think that it's good enough to exchange value based on the information yeah. that everybody's sharing and that nobody's committing fraud on the information that they're sharing yeah. and that's right. like you know so there's like a, so a contract that everybody has it's like here's the information we have here's our best guess about what's happening yeah. here's yeah. The science that's behind it here's you know, like here's how we're going to value that positive externality you know based on what we think it is and that's you know like markets are really good at pricing in uncertainty and so i i think i think most of these critiques are from people who are completely ignorant about <laughs> like yeah. how how hard it is to generate any sort of stable network any kind of certainty about anything in the world and like that that's a common thing people are commonly farmers farmers are gambling all the time on what they're going to plant when they're going to plant it you know they're operating with you know they're making 80 percent of the decisions with 20 percent of the information and that's a consistent that's consistently how we work as humans and like and yes is it incomplete 100 percent. could it be better yeah are there permanence issues yes you know uh, is that yeah, like on, 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 the, on the positive side of this on the positive side of this like just creating anything any any sort of self-sustaining cyclical system like that where, where you actually are able to change incentives and then show that you're not suffering from massive amounts of defection or cheating you know showing the pragmatic reality of that um at a non-trivial scale is you know that, that's i would say that that that's far more hopeful to me than seeing any sort of governmental resolution in words that then has to be sort of imposed um, by by coercive uh, legislation, let's say, or or sort of like very coarse grained tools legislatively. Like, I mean, if you're able to show that you can generate a financial technology, uh, generate or, or a way of representing value, um, such that a network of people are willing to use that without cheating on one another, 
um, and it's producing this positive externality uh, or multiple sets of positive externalities in terms of people's actual behavior of sequestering carbon in, in whatever formats they feel is, is, is most adequate for their land or their capacities. That's, you know, it's real, uh, it's a real thing in the world that didn't exist before. And, um, and we'll yes, see. Let me throw Anything. one more critique at, at you. Um, not, not that I necessarily agree with it or, you know, stand behind it, but I know there was an article recently with regard specifically to like some Biden policy about carbon farming that it kind of systematically favored large scale industrial farmers over small scale farmers. I mean, this, it, it speaks to everything we've been talking about, right? Or at least kind of the difficulty of, of capturing value in kind of small scale systems, the difficulty of, you know, legibility of everything that's important. And it might just be, um, you know, a, a critique that's, that, that occurs at this space of the adoption curve, right? Where small scale farmers are seeing that, well, we're not getting paid for anything. We're not getting paid for our diversified ecosystem services. The large scale industrial agriculture is optimizing for one variable, carbon sequestration. They're getting the money. And so it's, um, I, I don't know. It, I'm not necessarily not necessarily to respond. Um, it's just another, another critique that's out there. Well, we, we, ha we have to do it ourselves. The government's not gonna ever like get it. Yeah. Well, they're never going to get it. Eventually, we're going to have like, to do it ourselves. That's all I have to say. It's like maybe, maybe like maybe some people in the government are going to get it or get parts of it with high fidelity. But just the fundamental nature of the beast, the fundamental nature of the scale of that system, and the coarse grained reality that it operates at, is not going to be able to interact or, or interface directly with. Um, and would we want scale. it to? I, my well, question, exactly. I don't want it to. Precisely. I, I'm Precisely. Well, so not, not only that it's not going to be able to because it's non-functional, but also any sort of direct, like there's a massive mismatch in terms of the sort of um, the, the, the low resolution, like the, the low resolution inter interactions of the state with small scale entities is very similar to the low resolution of, of clumsy human beings with respect to small scale insects. Right, it's like most of our interfacing with ants is accidentally stepping on them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that there's there's a fundamental scale mismatch there that's never going to be um, avoidable. And you know, so therefore, it's always going to be we're always going to be capable of critiquing government policies for being overly coarse grained, um, benefiting larger entities because any sort of large scale entity that creates a a program that is attempting to maximize its efficiency is going to favor uh, larger entities for all the same scaling property reasons we've talked about. Uh, yeah. And so it's like, it has to come bottom up and it has to be created, you know, the, the types of systems we need have to be bootstrapped at the scale that they're going to be initially used, I would say. Yeah, and so our theory is basically like, you know, take, take advantage of this pre the present market conditions in which there's institutional appetite for carbon offsetting that is clearly not the theory of change here. <laughs> that, is a, that is a unique opportunity where there's a shift in value and va valuing that we can use to build out uh, tools so that then communities can use those same tools and regenerate the process and decide what they value. So if you wanna get together and create a, a value system for small diversified farms in which there's crediting and you know, even local mutual, you know, currencies being developed off of that 
you know, ecological productivity or whatever it may be, those tools are available and people can use them and you can sort of get a positive flywheel moving. But I mean, I think it's a good, I think it's a completely fair critique to say is like the, the, the Biden administration's move um, is going to be biased towards bigger farms. And I, for one, you know, I, I bet you though, there are opportunities within what they did for small farmers. I almost guarantee it. Is it biased towards big farms? Yeah. Are there, you know, like equip and other grants that are like carbon farming equipment and other things for small farms through local extension agents? I almost, I guarantee it yeah, that there are, and there's opportunities for smart like homesteaders and small small farmers to like engage yeah. with stuff. And hey, if we want to create values, it's like value socially constructed. So if we think it's valuable, let's make sure that it's valuable, basically. That's, I mean, to me, I'm just like, great. It's such a great opportunity to roll our sleeves up and like make it happen. <laughs> or, or at least create systems that allow for experimentation regarding the viability. Because like, we, it, it's hard, I mean, like, it, value is partly socially constructed uh the word value also relates to processes that we find quite necessary for our, our life functions um if somebody not, listening to this podcast wants to create a, a like a local like a, a local credit carbon crediting system or other like ecosystem service value that can be built on region network just get in touch with me we'll pay you to do it <laughs> Really, we'll pay you well. You can build it in an open source ecosystem and just launch it. And there's resources to do those sorts of things. I, it's kind of a miracle, but it, it's true. You know, at, that's the world that we live in. It's like people will pay you to, instead of complaining that, that, that there's an issue with things, to pay you to like, to like dig in. And it's hard though, right? You have to build a team or you have to have capability to do engineering and deal with complicated and complex systems. You have to be able to work at the intersection of science, distributed computing, you know, uh, there's just like a lot of things. It, it demands that people step up and like leverage a lot, like the cutting edge of human cognitive capability to, to make it happen. But if people can do that, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to engage with pretty awesome yeah. stuff in our network and others. You know, I mean, it is, and it is going to take a lot of inspired and capable individuals um, rising to that challenge and, and being inspired by that vision. It, it does, it really does require uh, that scale of, of transformative, uh, sort of, the transformation of our thought, our model of change, our model of reality from a, a model where, you know, we have this sort of hangover, I think, to some extent from the democratic paradigm of a centralized physical institution where you know lending our vote is enough for that centralized institution to then bend back upon many of the problems in our society to uh, quote unquote solve them uh, i don't think that that's an adequate model of reality for an increasingly complex world um, that's going to demand uh, more of every node let's say every person in that system the more you want decentralization the more complexity and the more weight falls upon every single individual in yes. that system. And so, you know, if we want it, we're going to have to be willing to put in that extra effort. We're going to be willing to 
do things not because it is the most profitable, but because we believe it is, is the right way to do something or that it ladders up into a greater vision for future generations. Um, and you can do that without also imposing on others necessarily through these centralized mechanisms that are going to invariably inflame people when you try to act on them through this large centralized tool. Um, you can attract them by creating systems that, as you say, perhaps pay them or uh, improve the quality of their life or the quality of their relationships to their environment, to their land, um, to the communities. So all of the above, right? I, I, yeah. I mean, it, it seems like both both of I think I'm glad I asked those questions because I think both of your answers are really good and it's kind of an inspiring note maybe to end on. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's getting a bit late. Totally, it's getting yeah, late. It's getting wow, late. it's really late. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we went three hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, we'll see if, if somebody makes it this far, hopefully they can be inspired by, by your guys' responses. If you've made yeah. it this far, dear listener, tweet to us and we'll figure out some sort of like, you know, special, uh, special gift. You know, I do think, I know, I know at the beginning of this that you said that, um, that you don't have time for editing, uh, obviously push it out as a whole, it might be worthwhile. Like I, if you send me the, uh, the full, uh, full video, I might want to like, you know, obviously revisit, I definitely want to revisit it, but also maybe extract some, some of the parts of this conversation that were a little bit more topical. Uh, cause we, we, we uh, covered quite a broad array yeah. of topics. Totally. So it might be yeah. Cool to, yeah. So people, Love people that. might might not want to digest three hours at once, but maybe maybe shorter excerpts also could be interesting for people. And, you know, and I'm going to try to get a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm going to try to stand up a little bit more. Um, this is my first podcast for months and months and months, <laughs> and I'm going to try to. You know, and you can see we're I'm doing it on Zoom, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, due to some very challenging experiences I had with some some podcasting software that was supposed to, you know, do higher quality, you know, video. Anyway, I, it was a mess. So um, anyway, I'm also going to try my best to like get serious about having a production team and being able to do things like do topical sections and get you know, get things sort of published up so that people can do bite-sized stuff, but not probably not for this episode. <laughs> so if you want to, if you want to take a crack at, at just sort of like pulling, you know, pulling a couple pieces out and putting them on YouTube, that'd be awesome. I'm happy to share the, share the recording. Yeah. Send it over. I would love to revisit it. I mean, I think I, I would just like to reflect on some of the moments of conversation that we've had here and think through them a little bit more deeply as well. But I would also, you know, as I do that, keep an eye out for, uh, little snippets that might be of, of broad interest to people who want like five, 10, 15 minute segments on a topic. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, Jason, Matthew, thanks so much for uh, jamming with me. And yeah, thanks for, the seated, thanks for this heated debate. <laughs> Is that beef been going on for you guys the whole time? Yeah. What a, what a blood sport that we've been partaking in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, a, that was ruthless. Yeah. So <laughs> my wounds now. Yeah. All right. Have a great evening, gentlemen. And, uh, okay. Cheers. Thanks for, Wonderful for I, I enjoyed it a lot. Me too. All right. Thank you all. all right.